and give everyone a very warm welcome to this meeting of the Education Committee. Agenda item one, members, is apologies. We've received an apology from Robin Newton, and I am aware that Harry Harvey will leave at 10.15 uh, a.m. for the funeral of the late Gordon Dunn, MLA. And I would, as chairperson of the Education Committee, on, on behalf of all members, would wish to send condolences to the, the family of our, our late colleague, Gordon Dunn, MLA. I know that warm and heartfelt tributes were paid to Gordon in the Assembly on Monday of this week, and we would echo all of those tributes that have been made and, uh, and extend our condolences to, to Gordon's uh, family, friends, and uh, DUP colleagues here at the Assembly. Agenda well, item two, members, thank you. The agenda item two is Chairperson's Business. Uh, can I welcome to the committee our new members, Harry Harvey, MLA, and Diane Dodds, MLA. Um, great to have you on board, and you'll, you'll be most welcome, and you'll find our, our committee constructive, I, I hope indeed. Uh, agenda item 2.2, the committee met informally yesterday with Kelly Armstrong, MLA, sponsor of the Integrated Education Private Members Bill. A note of the informal meeting is tabled and the business office has scheduled second stage of the bill for the 6th of July. After this debate, uh, unless the bill should not pass at second stage, the bill will pass immediately to the Committee for Education for scrutiny, and we are accordingly preparing a call for evidence to issue to stakeholders over the summer recess, should that be possible. Uh, members wish to record any views at this stage on the bill as introduced or content to note the process as I've outlined? Content. Okay, that's great. Hey, Thank you. Sir, could I just come in there? Yes, Pat, and, go ahead. Uh, I mean, it is. Well, well, first of all, I had a meeting with Kelly myself on, on uh, Monday, so uh, I'm up to speed despite the fact I missed the informal meeting yesterday. It is unfortunate timing and that the call for evidence is going to take place over the summer. Uh, what are your views on that? Do we need to extend the time that's going to be allowed for that? Or uh, do you think it can go ahead over the summer recess? I think given the timings of the mandate, I'd be inclined to support uh, it going ahead over the summer. However, you might, in terms of a, a brief extension to to include, um, you know, a week or two in September. Maybe that's uh, something worth considering, as you say, Pat. Um, ha happy for members to have a think about that um, before we come back to us. Sorry, Justin, go ahead there. What other important legislation is consulted over summer recess? I'm sure I could give you examples of uh, of consultations that that happened over the summer, um, but if you which is closed down as well. In turn, just just don't, I want to interrogate this. I just feel summer recess period is not the appropriate time to consult on education matters. Uh, perhaps in an ideal world, Justin, the mandate, as you'll be aware, um, if we get there, finishes uh, in May of next year. So really the. The timescales are what they are. I'm happy to try and get examples of where it has happened in order to provide some comfort and reassurance. But if, if members wish to consider whether some period of time in September might be useful as well, obviously schools go back 
uh, late August into September, then I think that's something that um, you can think about. As I say, the second stage is 6th of July, and we'll obviously meet on the 7th of July. So happy to consider those types of issues between now and then. Okay. Is that okay? Great. Okay. Thanks for that, members. 2.3 is youth engagement. Can I advise members uh, that uh, we took part in a youth engagement event, My Life and Learning in Lockdown, during Refugee Week last week, facilitated by Red Cross, Extern, and Bernardo's, and our Assembly Education uh, team and the Assembly our assembly engagement team and our assembly education committee team as well. Thank them for all the work that went into that. It was a very interesting, uh, thoroughly enjoyable session and it raised a number of issues about the experience of remote learning for pupils uh, for whose first language is not English. I think um, we, we had an understanding of, of how challenging remote learning had been for pupils whose first language is English and I know that from an Irish medium point of view some of these issues have been raised as well but I, I think I had underestimated the scale of the challenge uh, for some of our newcomer pupils and those pupils whose first, uh, whose first language is not English, the difficulty these pupils face to get schools, places, college places, careers guidance when they arrive here, if they're already age 16 or over, was another issue. Um, so next week, the Education Committee will receive a presentation on some of the artwork produced for the My Life and Learning in Lockdown project, and we'll receive an update on all of those in youth engagement events that we undertook from the Assembly Engagement Service, Education Service, and Communication Service. Are members content that next week the committee meeting would be in hybrid format in the Senate and on Starleaf in order to facilitate these presentations, uh, in order that the committee team can display some of the work? Agreed? Great, Chair. Thanks for that. Okay, 2.4 members, we've received in table papers uh, a song called Celebrate the Artist created by local artist Ed Reynolds and Wheelworks Art Group. If you're content, we will play a sample of the song next week as it uh, relates very much to the theme of my life and learning in lockdown. The link to the song is in your packs if members want to uh, listen to that in advance, uh, if you're content to agree that approach. Agreed? Bring bringing some arts to the education committee next week if you if you're can. okay members. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's great. Okay. Agenda item three is draft minutes. Can I refer members to the draft minutes of the committee meeting on the 9th of June at page six at your meeting packs and seek your agreement that the minutes are a complete and accurate record of proceedings. Agreed. Yep. Thank you. There are no matters arising, members. And that brings us to agenda item five, our presentation from the Department of Education on the special educational needs framework. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting? Yes, sorry, go ahead. Just before you go, go into that and into the, the business of the day, I think there may be an issue uh, with quorum by the time we get to 12 o'clock. Um, so I guess if you want to address that now, either in... Um, uh, if you want to have a quick discussion now about that, um, I, I, my calculations, 
um, because of Gordon's funeral today. Harry will obviously be attending that. I think Justin's indicated that um, he's another commitment at 12 that will leave myself, yourself, Nicola and Pat at best. Um, and that may not be cool. You are, uh, you do appear to be correct. <laughs> um, so after 12, we have me, Pat, Robbie, Nicola and Justin. Is Daniel scheduled to join? No, just, or, just sorry, me. not Justin's away as well. Okay. Yeah. Is Daniel scheduled to join? I'm assuming so. I think maybe he's got a technology issue which he's had uh, ongoing. Okay. So I'll check it right. Okay. If we I'll can, Daniel and see. Yeah. Yeah, we can check that. Um, my understanding, Clark, is that uh, quorum for uh, the committee to meet is four. Uh, decision making is five. So we can proceed yeah. with four. Um, and just not able to make decisions, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, myself, Pat, Robbie, Nicola, one, two, that's four actually there anyway. So uh, Daniel would give us uh, a decision-making quorum of five. Is that right, Clark? Yeah, he would. I'll, I'll okay, okay. I, I understand the exceptional circumstances that are at play here today uh, in terms of the, the funeral. Um, and... Uh, obviously, myself, Pat, Robbie, Nicola, and Daniel. If uh, there are any other issues for any of us, um, if you could make those. Uh, I've just received a, a message of apologies, I think, from uh, Daniel. So we may be down to uh, a norm decision making quorum of four, which will still allow us um, to do business. Um, we, we would just have to come back to decisions. At another on another occasion. Uh, thanks for pointing that out, Robbie. And obviously, uh, Pat, yourself, Nicola, and I turn to gold dust for the rest of the meeting and um, leave uh, <laughs> at, at, with great reluctance, please, <laughs> um, in order to let us get through what is really important business today. Obviously, um, okay. Thanks, thanks for that, Robbie. Clark, you're content that we proceed. Yes, Chair, if we get a chance to do correspondence earlier or something like that, we can take that opportunity. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, different. Okay, well, do you, do, you, do you want to try and take correspondence now then? Would the Department of Education be willing to grace us with five or ten minutes to do that, or, or, do, you want, or do we need to proceed as scheduled? Well, sure, it won't take very long. Um, okay. I think we're on. We're, I think we were scheduled to receive the department now. So if they can hear me, if they're willing to grace us with five or ten minutes in the exceptional circumstances that we face today, um, we could move to correspondence. And Clark, if that's okay. Okay, Diane has joined the meeting chair as well. Um, Hello, Diane. You're, you're kind of extend a very warm welcome to you on behalf of the education committee. Um, we're we're delighted to have you on board. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. No okay, Clark. Agenda item eight is correspondence. Uh, can I refer members to page one nine six, where we have thirteen items of correspondence and a summary note at page one nine seven. Clark, would you like to speak to the correspondence? Sure. Um, Chair, item 86 on page 218 is correspondence on behalf of the Future Schools Project, a collaborative project between the Ulster University UNESCO Centre um, and the Integrated Education Fund. Um, they request an opportunity um, on the work and progress of the project. Um, if members are content, we can send an invitation to the organisation for a formal briefing. 
Agreed, members? Agreed? If you, if you can give me a, a quick agreed when you're in agreement, that'll keep us moving. Thanks very much. Okay, Thank Clark, you. that's agreed. Thanks. Um, item 87 on page 219 is correspondence from School Start Flexibility and I providing a briefing paper on school starting, which flexibility and highlighting um, submission following the de departmental briefing to the committee on the 5th of May. Um, members, would you like to schedule a briefing with um, this organisation also? Yeah, that, agreed, yeah. Okay, item 88 on page 230 is correspondence from Girl Guiding Ulster regarding a new study on girls' safety and their experiences of sexual harassment. Um, we forwarded some material from Girl Guiding Ulster already to the Justice Committee and the Women's Caucus, given the interest in um, the Gillen Review on the issues of safety and consent. Uh, members, I suggest we might do the same with this correspondence. Agreed. Thank you. Agree, members? Agreed, yeah. Thanks. Item 89 on page 244 is correspondence um, from an individual uh, regarding investigations by the Education and Training Inspectorate into sexual harassment in schools. Um, the ETI have responded, uh, indicating that um, there was no specific risk report undertaken on sexual harassment in schools. So members, just to take your views on that one. Okay. Has the the correspondent misunderstood the where the reports have come from then, Clark? Um, I believe it's um, uh, it, it's based on on um, perhaps uh, some speculative rather than reported. Okay. Um, okay. Is it is it possible to send the ETI response to the individual and to seek their response in, in order to consider any further action sure. necessary? Yeah, sure, members yeah. content with that approach. Thank you. Members content. Agreed. Okay. okay. Um, thank you, Deputy Chair. Um, so, other than that, members, are you content to dispose of the correspondence as per the summary note at page one nine seven? Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Thanks for that, Clark. Uh, do you, any forward programme issues you need decisions on? Um, the forward work programme um, that is in your packs today uh, is fairly up to date with re regard to things that members have wanted to schedule. Um, so just to uh, let you know that it will next week it will take account of some legislative business. So for instance, whatever progress has been made by the Integrated Education Bill, um, an early CCEA briefing after the summer um, to take account of what's happened with results in that, um, and an update on GTCNI in early September as well. Um, you'll remember that the Minister was due to hear um, a, review, a report from the Independent Review um, on GTCNI at the end of the summer, so that will be timely. Okay, members content to endorse the forward work program. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Sure. Thank you. Yes, Thanks. Justin, go ahead. Apologies, can I, can I go back to correspondence? Justin, that's that, uh, that sexual harassment correspondence from um, Professor Item, item 8.9 on page 244, Justin, yep. Yeah, I'm just, is it on a red flag? 
I think that's why, obviously, it is a serious issue, which is why I'm suggesting we send the response we've received from ETI back to the correspondent in order to see if we need to take further action. I think Diane wants to come in as well. Is uh, that sorry, right? yeah, yeah, Diane. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry to send it back to the correspondent, to the, uh, the person who's corresponding with us. Is it not a red flag to us as a committee that there is no policy in schools and our education system around sexual harassment? Is that not a major red flag? Uh, is that is that what the, the correspondence has stated? Yeah, and the, and from, the from from ETI and the education and training inspectors have, have uh, said that. So I find that quite astonishing. Yeah, we certainly forward that to the Department of Education for an urgent response on that, in addition to forwarding the car or forwarding the correspondence to the initial correspondence, Justin, as a and seek an urgent response to that. Thank you. Be content with that, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Okay. And Diane, did you want to come in as well there? Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? I'm not terribly use. sure how to use this device, but anyway. Um, a couple of things, and I've, I've kind of been looking at the, the forward work plan, and uh, thank you very much for your welcome, Chris. I really do look forward to um, working on this committee. Um, I am a teacher by trade. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in this committee, um, but um, and I really do look forward, because it is one of my passions, um, education and supplying um, education um, for all of our, our young people. I hadn't noticed, and maybe this is scheduled, so forgive me being a novice asking the obvious questions. I mean, one of the biggest reports that has been done um, over the last number of months um, in education is the Fair Start report. So are we going to, as a committee, because I think this is really, really valuable stuff, um, are we going to get a an opportunity for the, the panel, the Fair Start panel, um, to uh, present to the committee? That was the first question. I have another one. <laughs> yeah, I, I thank, thanks for that. Absolutely, Diane. Um, great, great to have a, a teacher by trade on the committee. And um, we, my understanding is we have requested a briefing from the panel in relation to the Fair Start report, but Clark, perhaps you could confirm that. Yeah, um, that invitation has gone and it's from the 7th of July, Diane. So it's actually um, referred to in the Forward Work Programme as the okay. expert panel on underachievement, sorry, rather than Fair Start. I may have missed all of this in, in, in it's a huge pack. So I may, forgive me, first day, no, no. I'm just asking the obvious questions. So it's, we always, it's always good, it's always good to make sure they're covered, Diane. Thank you, no problem. Um, Go ahead, yep. The second question really was really around something that I um, I have, I've kind of, I haven't fully read the, the fair start, so I'm, I'm going to be absolutely honest on that one. The, the, the other element of this that I really wanted to look at was fair start focuses quite significantly on early years and the importance of early years, and that's absolutely um, the right place to start. But I do think that there is a gap um, in, in, in how we do business with young people, um, particularly from the age 14 up. 
Um, and that is, I mean, I as a teacher, and I haven't taught in years and years and years, but I mean, I, I taught in a very large non-selective school in Lisburn, um, which had a very, very wide range of, of pupils, from those who went on to become lawyers, doctors, etc., to those who did other uh, jobs, and those who really found school very challenging. Um, and the, the thing that I think going forward that maybe we need to have a look at, some focus on, is what happens to children at 14? What happens to young people at 14? Do we keep them disinterested and say, no, 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 you must study GCSE history at three o'clock on a Friday, and you know fine rightly they're not one bit interested? Or do you try to open up other pathways for those children? So that by the time they get to 16, I think some of them are switched off altogether. And I really, I think that this is, I just think there's a real opportunity, having focused on the early years, there's a real opportunity to come together. And I'm unashamedly using my economy background as well, um, in coming together to try to help young people make choices that are more relevant for them and more relevant um, for the economy. And I was wondering if that was a piece of work that the committee would be um, just in, in any way wanting to do, because I think that that's a massive contribution to the education debate in Northern Ireland. And I, I would be happy to, to talk to some people um, around that, but just to throw that out, Yes. Um, as, as, a, as part of that forward work planning, have we an appetite to look at the choices, how young people make choices, how those choices are presented to them? I spoke recently, and with this I'll finish, to my cousin's young daughter, and her choice um, when she was doing her GCSEs was, um, you know, there's that book on that subject, or you might want to do, you know, and I know young people sometimes can be a bit vague at that age in their life, and they're entitled to be. Um, but I think we need to we need to offer them better choices. Yeah, no point well made, Diane, and, and it's my understanding, Clark, that we have requested a briefing from the Department of Education and Department of Economy on the 14 to 19 strategy, which should obviously, Diane, in, include um, work to provide those varied and appropriate pathways and, and palliative esteem for those pathways and look at issues like good quality careers guidance as well. Um, your your uh, extensive experience in that economy role would be really helpful, I think, for the committee in our work in relation to those matters. So, um, Clark, can you confirm that we are requesting a, a briefing and, and scheduling work in that regard? I can, Chair. Um, and the committee has been um, wanting to do some work with the econo Economy Committee for a while. Um, the first thing that's in the programme in September is actually a briefing about uh, Pivotal and Generations um, NI, um, which would be concurrent with the Economy Committee, um, but we'll prioritise the 14 to 19 strategy as well, um, given okay. their... Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Con are you content with those inclusions, Diane? Yes, I mean, the, the committee might, once it hears from, um, I mean, Pivotal is a, a slightly different report, and it's looking at what happens to young people in the choices they make at university level, you know, whether they're staying in Northern Ireland, going away from Northern Ireland, and the kind of things and the choices that we will have to make 
as to how we fund all of those so slightly different to what I was talking about. I really think fundamentally we need to look at and help children to open up different pathways for them um, at, at an earlier age. So it's a slightly yeah. different piece of work, but it's on that line. And I, I think that's maybe a piece of work um, that we could all do together because I think there's a lot of consensus about this. Yeah, I think so. Uh, agreed. Well, well, we'll make sure that's programmed in in, in the, the new term, Diane, and we can get our teeth into that at that stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Clark, I think that, I'm sorry, Justin, just to come back um, in relation to the correspondence issue, um, you're, you're right, obviously, to emphasize that <coughs> the, the, the correspondence um, from that has been shared with us from ETI is already known to the correspondent. Um, therefore, the action does require us to, or we are required to take further action at this stage already. Um, the response to professor to the professor who's written um, states that while schools are required to have a code of conduct for staff, there is no requirement to have a specific policy on sexual harassment so if you'd be agreed then i would suggest that the action is the right to the eti and the department of education to ask why not content with that Justin? agreed yep thanks that's great okay clark um that takes us back then to agenda item five and our briefing from the department of education on the special educational needs framework can i ask assembly broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses. Can I refer members to a cover note from the committee clerk at page 17, a SAN summary of the framework consultations at page 23, a summary report of the consultation responses on the SAN code of practice at page 27, a summary report of consultation responses on the SAN regulations at page 71, and Education Authority response on special educational needs at page 110. Also, a Hansard of last week's briefing on SEN with the Children's Commissioner and the Children's Law Centre has been tabled in your tabled items. Can I welcome then Ricky Irwin, the Director of Inclusion and Wellbeing at the Department of Education, Julie McBride, Head of SEN at the Department of Education, Chris Hutchinson, SEN Review Team at the Department of Education, Claire McKenna, Representative at the Education Authority, Tracy Logan, Representative from the Education Authority, Mark Lee, Director of Disability and Older People from the Department of Health, and Geraldine Teague, Lead AHP Consultant, Children and Young People and Interagency at the Public Health Agency. Can I advise witnesses that the committee will allocate approximately 10 minutes for your opening statement, followed by questions from members, which can be answered from across the panel of witnesses. Can I hand over to Ricky then? And Ricky, thank you for bearing with us for a short moment of time there due to uh, a few exceptional circumstances today. Thank you. Chair, no problem, and thanks very much. Um, uh, we'd like to thank the committee for the opportunity this morning to provide a briefing on the responses to the consultations on the draft same regulations and the same code of practice. At our briefing on the 2nd of December last year, we provided you with an update on the draft regulations and the supporting draft code of practice and our plan next steps. 
Suffice to say, these legislative changes are an essential element to the overall reform of SEND services. Since our briefing, we have been concentrating on how we can further refine the regulations and have considered the changes proposed by consultation respondents. We have also taken the opportunity to commence Section 1 of the SEND Act, which came into effect on the 18th of December, and requires the EA to have regard to the views of the child, recognising the importance of their participation in decisions which affect them. Today, however, I want to focus on the main themes that have emerged from the recent consultations on both the regulations and the code. These extended consultation exercises closed on the 2nd of March, and we are in receipt of over 200 responses for each consultation exercise. This is a sizable response rate, especially given the pressures that schools, health, education and other sectors have experienced over the last 12 months with the pandemic. We also took steps to secure the views of both children and young people who have SEN and of parents and carers via targeted consultation exercises. DE used two independent organisations to engage with our target groups. Parenting NI facilitated the focus groups with parents and the EA's youth service facilitated the consultations with children and young people. Both organisations were key in supporting and engaging with these groups outside of the formal text-heavy consultation process, and all views expressed have been incorporated into the respective summary reports. I would like to express our gratitude to all who took the time to digest a large quantity of material and who responded to both consultations, and thanks also to those that attended meetings with departmental officials during the consultation process. You will have received two summary reports on the consultation responses to accompany this session and these provide more detail on the views of respondents. While the Department does not want to oversimplify or generalise the scope of responses received on these consultations, I think it is fair to say that there is a lot of support to the changes that were proposed. Nevertheless, there is a clear indication that sufficient resources, training and support have to be provided so that the new SEND framework can be implemented fully in order to bring effective change and improve the outcomes for children and young people who have or may have a special educational need. The summary reports mainly focus on the responses to the questions asked in the consultation documents. However, they also include details of areas which respondents wish to highlight. One of those areas was the timing of the consultation in the midst of a pandemic and the closure of schools. While the Department acknowledges these views, there has been already significant delay in bringing forward changes to the same regulations and associated code of practice. We were keen not to delay any further, and in recognition of the timing of the consultations, we twice extended the deadlines, resulting in the consultations being open for 22 weeks rather than the usual 12 weeks. It is not my intention to talk you through each page of the summary reports, however, I would like to highlight a few areas. So turning to the role of the Learning Support Coordinator, 55% of respondents indicated that they were content that with the proposed experience requirements, i.e. three years for the Learning Support Coordinator, and 61% of respondents indicated that the role of the Learning Support Coordinator was clearly set out in the draft same code. However, concerns were raised about the perceived increase in workload and the time that would be required to fully execute the Learning Support Coordinator duties. It was also highlighted that smaller schools may have difficulty in fulfilling this dedicated role. 
and, theref and therefore it may fall to the principal. Respondents also commented that larger schools who have higher numbers of children on their same register, um, they may require more than one learning support coordinator. It was also commented that the role of the learning support coordinator brings additional responsibility and accountability to not only teachers and principals, but also to boards of governors who carry out this role voluntarily. Turning to the introduction of the upper time limits for the EA to issue a completed uh, statement, the majority of responses, 71%, agreed with introducing an upper time limit for completion of the statutory assessment and statementing process. And this figure rose to 100% when sur surveying parents via the targeted consultation exercise. There was certainly a strong feeling that the existing process is too long, too cumbersome and too bureaucratic. There was therefore a general consensus that the proposed new target of 22 weeks was admirable. However, this proposal was not without criticism. In particular, a number of respondents commented that appropriate governance arrangements have to be put in place for both the EA and health and social care trusts to ensure these time limits are adhered to, and also that meeting the new time limits would be optimistic given the significant flaws in the current system. So now moving to um, the change of five stages to three stages of special educational provision. A number of respondents felt that the draft saying code will only work if the EA is in a position to deliver the advice, support and guidance needed by the system and a clear, transparent plan of educational provision is in place. While the move from five stages to three was broadly welcomed, respondents commented that there, were, there will still be the same issue about the ability to access stage two services in terms of delays and waiting lists and the time allocation model for the educational psychology service. To clearly explain the new three-stage process, the department included in the draft code of practice a number of flowcharts uh, and checklists. These were positively received with respondents stating that they were a useful tool in providing structure and additional guidance for teaching staff. So now turning to the personal learning plan, PLP. There was a mixed reaction received regarding the PLP and its contents with 40% agreeing and 46% not agreeing with its proposed content. It was welcomed that the PLP will now be a statutory requirement and will bring consistency to the type of information captured in relation to children with SEN across each school phase. There were concerns raised about the size of the PLP, the amount of detail contained within it, and the time it would take to complete for each child on the SEN register. Feedback from parents was more positive. They welcomed the level of detail to be included in the PLP, and that it was to be consistent across school phases and 73% found it clear and easy to understand. Children and young people also welcomed the PLP, commenting that it was important for them to have their say to its content and it would help them receive the necessary support. So in, now in relation to transition planning for those children aged 14 and over with a statement. Respondents agreed that the process is clearly laid out in the draft code and it is not too different than the current process. However, they commented that it is imperative that schools are guaranteed to receive support from an EA transitions coordinator. Many respondents highlighted the need for better cooperation between government departments and external agencies to offer appropriate advice in terms of further educational opportunities, academic and vocational, and better career advice 
and other options for those that require ongoing health support. Chair, I've highlighted only a few of the areas in relation to responses received to the consultation process, but you will appreciate this is by no means an exhaustive list of views. Further comments are included within the consultation summary reports, and these provide more detail on the views of respondents, and these will be published on the Department's website this afternoon. In terms of next steps, we will consider carefully each response to the consultations and also your views to determine the necessary changes that need to be made to the regulations and the code of practice. We will also continue to work with our colleagues in the EA, health and departmental solicitors to finalise the same regulations. It is our intention that officials will present an update on the proposed changes to the regulations to you later in the autumn, and they will then commence their legislative journey through the Assembly, subject to ministerial approval. Chair, members of the committee, I hope that you found today's update useful uh, and welcome any questions that you may have on the responses to the consultations. Uh, and as you can see, we're joined by some um, EA and health colleagues. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Ricky. A, a number of our, our members have uh, exceptional commitments uh, to attend today, so I'll go straight to members and try and get as many included as I can. Can I move to... Uh, Pat Sheehan, Deputy Chairperson, please. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Uh, slight delay there and getting on muted. Um, uh, uh, thanks very much, folks. And, and we heard some pretty hard hidden evidence from the Children's Commissioner and the Children's Law Centre last week in relation to the new framework. And uh, they're saying that up to 50 NGOs have uh, said that the new provisions in the framework, which were intended to strengthen the system, are actually going to weaken it. So what's your response to that? Pat, thank you for that question. And if the committee would permit me the time to address that issue. Um, I'd like to do that now. I do want to be very clear about this issue. Uh, the department is not seeking to weaken or dilute duties. The draft regulations and the code of practice flow from the SEND Act primary legislation, which the Assembly passed in 2016. Um, it was commented that we are proposing to be included in Schedule 2. What we are proposing is contrary to current law, and we're making an attempt to get around cooperating with health, and we're acting outside our legal duties. I wish to advise the committee today that the Department takes the issue of complying with legislation extremely seriously, and we are working very closely with EA and health colleagues to bring about positive changes for children, young people and parents to reduce bureaucracy in the system and to ensure they get the support they need when they need it. Under the amendment not yet commenced to Article 14 of the 96 Education Order, if in helping the EA make an assessment of a child, the Health and Social Care Authority identifies any relevant treatment or service likely to benefit in addressing the sin of a child, the trust are required to provide that treatment or service, and this is a standalone obligation. The statement proposed in the draft regulations is the same format as is currently being used and is detailed within the 2005 SENDO regulations. So we are not proposing something that is contrary to current law. 
We are assuming that the references um, last week are to the draft regulations that we consulted on back in 2016. And these regulations proposed placing treatment or services to be provided by health and social care in part three of the statement. This would have meant that if the service was not provided by health, an appeal could be lodged with the Sendus Tribunal, who could direct the EA to provide that service, but they could not compel health to provide the service. It is important to note that the 2016 regulations were only proposed and never made into law. The Department has sought legal advice on this issue, Pat, uh, a number of times, and each response has indicated that it's a very complex area and open to interpretation. The legal advice given to the Department in 2018 stated that the EA has ultimate responsibility for ensuring that any provision listed by the EA in Part 3 of the statement is provided, and it may therefore be prudent not to include in the schedule matter matters which are the responsibility not of the EA, but of the Health and Social Care Authority. This is because ultimately, if the Health and Social Care Authority does not provide a treatment or service, which is listed in Part 3 of the statement, it is the EA that is responsible for making the provision. In particular, the EA should be careful not to find itself responsible for relevant treatment or services. These are the matters for the Health and Social Care Authority, and since they must, by Article 14, normally relate to the statutory functions of a Health and Social Care Authority, they are not apt matters for the EA to take on. Before going out to consult in 2020, the Department again sought legal advice on this issue, Pat, as it was aware through discussions with stakeholders such as CLC and Nikki that they didn't like the approach of splitting education and health services. The advice back from DSO was the same as that provided in 2018, and therefore the statement that is included in the 2020 consultation remains the same format as the current statement being used today. It is worth noting that if a parent felt that a treatment should be more properly included in Part 3, then this could be appealed to the Sendist under Article 18. Some stakeholders in their responses to the latest consultations have raised this issue again uh, of what should be included in Part 3 and Part 6 of the statement. And so we have again recently sought DSO advice, which we only obtained recently in April of this year, and also supported by junior council advice, and they too have accepted it was not easy to specify what should go into each part of a statement. There is significant case law uh, which exists uh, on this, and it held that the question of whether a provision is educational, non-educational, or a mixture of both is not a question of law, but was a matter for the relevant education authority and on appeal the Special Educational Needs Tribunal. And this case law also recognised that health-related provision can fall within Part 3 and Part 6 of the statement simultaneously, and any guidance that states that health treatments should always be in Part 3 or always be in Part 6 will be wrong. Further to this, an attempt to further clarify the duties of the health authority as opposed to the EA, or to widen the appeal grounds to Sandist, or to mandate health provision excluding um, if I could just but I'm, I'm nearly finished um it would require a change to primary um legislation so um, while this case law is not applicable to Northern Ireland our advisors agree that it's not as straightforward as, as to what constitutes special educational provision and non-educational provision so what I'm saying Pat is the departments are very alive to this issue we have further meetings scheduled with Nikki and the Children's Law Centre 
and our health and education uh, EA colleagues to work through this issue. We want to resolve this so that children and young people get the support they need when they need it without having to go to a tribunal. Yeah, and all that's fair enough. And, and you lost me probably about 20 seconds into that monologue. Um, and I suppose what I asked you was, are Nikki, the Children's Law Centre, and the 50 NGOs wrong when they say that the provisions are actually going to, the provisions in the framework are actually going to weaken uh, the services that are provided to children instead of strengthening them? So I think I would just summarise what I've said there, Pat, which is we recognise this is an issue raised by those stakeholders as part of the consultation. Um, it's a complex legal area that requires further consideration. Um, what is proposed in the current regulations is the same in terms of the statement that currently exists. So it is, of course, our intention that all children get the support they need when they need it without going um, to the tribunal. But because of the complexity of the legal issues involved, we need further time to work through this. So we, we are meeting CLC and Nikki to talk to them further about this issue. Okay, well, when, when are you going to be meeting them? So the dates that I have are, we're meeting Nikki on the 1st of July, which is next week, and we are meeting the Children's Law Centre on the 27th of July, Pat. And we did try to meet them before last week's session, but unfortunately we weren't able to get those meetings scheduled. Okay, and and I understand legislation can be quite complex, especially when people want it to be. Um, but the core principle in all of this is that children, and particularly children who have complex needs, uh, that those needs are met in a, in a holistic way, uh, both their educational requirements and health and social care requirements. And to me, and I would say to the ordinary person in the street, that's not a difficult or complex issue. Uh, and I mean, there are difficulties in terms of the statement not having uh, or the proposed statement not having a facility to, re to record health and social care needs. So, uh, and, and that was one of the concerns raised last week. So how is that going to be rectified? So currently the proposed statement under part six would allow for the recording of non-educational provision, i.e. health treatment or services. But that goes to the crux of the issue, which has been raised by CLC uh, and Nikki, which is anything which is in part six is not appealable to the Sanders Tribunal. Uh, uh, and they are requesting that that treatment or service is actually put into a different part of the statement. I think the key issue for the department and for the education authority is that it cannot find itself in a position being responsible for the statutory function of another department. Uh, and so that is the complexity around this issue. Now, we are working very well and very closely with our health and education authority colleagues to try and resolve this issue. And it is our intention to come to a resolution during the course of the next few weeks and come back to this committee with the proposals around the changes to the regulations. And explain to me why there's a difficulty in cooperation between the Education Authority and Health and Social Care? There is no difficulty in cooperation between Health and Social Care 
and DEA. When the Assembly passed the 2016 SEND Act, it actually introduced provisions which would further strengthen, strengthen cooperation between health and education, and we very much welcome those. And what we're trying to do as part of this secondary legislation is to put that into practice and translate that into guidance for schools, um, health authorities and everyone involved. So there is no difficulty in cooperation. What this is doing is just trying to strengthen that and convert that into statutory guidance. Pat, I'm going to have to ask you for a final question there. I realise that a fair bit of time was taken up um, by um, the response. Do you want a final question? Yeah, just just on, on stage two support, uh, which uh, has to be provided by the Education Authority, uh, that's only going to be recorded when the child is actually in receipt of that support. Is there not a need for the EA to monitor and record the number of children who are actually waiting to receive stage two support. Thanks. Pat, yes, I would agree with that. Uh, and so would the Education Authority. Uh, and a separate piece of work that's going on in the EA is to look at identifying the levels of unmet need, for example, um, those who are waiting to see educational psychologists. So I think you've raised a good point because we can't just look at the same framework in isolation. We have to look at it in the context of the other work that's going on to reform service delivery within the EA and also for the department to deliver against PAC recommendations and all the reviews there. So yes, I would absolutely agree with you and, and that work is being taken forward as we speak. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Pat. Can I bring in Diane Dodds, MLA, please? Is Diane there? Nope. Okay. Uh, can I bring... Oh, Dan is there. Sorry, Diane. Thank you. Thanks. I uh, apologise. Um, no, well, again, I'm going back to the... I'm not making a lot of points today in, in this one, um, but generally what I find, and I think what I would like to see um, in the practical arrangements for parents is a, is a slimmer more uh, fit for purpose um, set of circumstances for um, parents to manage. When you have a disabled child, you imagine in your dreams somewhere that the world and everybody is going to descend on you to help you to manage this process. The reality is very different for parents and parents end up managing and fighting the system forever and ever and ever. Um, I know this personally but also I have helped many, many parents to manage the system. Um, and if, if there's one thing, I mean, it, we're here talking about, you know, <clears throat> we can't, um, you know, regulate for another department's responsibilities. It goes to the heart, I'd have to say, of what we should be doing is trying to make government simpler and access to services simpler. Um, and I don't think that's beyond our wit to do that, personally. Um, so I'm going to say, I'm going to leave my comment for there for now. But when I see the review of how this has worked out, that's what I want to see. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Diane. And I think Diane is going to the, the heart of the matter there. Ricky, how, how will this new framework make assessment of and support for special educational needs of children in Northern Ireland more timely and more effective? And, and what is the Department of Health 
going to do in terms of the challenges that it uh, faces and the role that it plays as part of that process. Ricky and then Mark, thanks Diane. Okay, um, Chair, th thanks for that. I, uh, some of the, the new things to be introduced as part of the SEND Act will actually make this um, a better process for parents and children and schools to engage in. So in terms of statutory assessment, the proposal is to reduce the time frame for assessment from 26 weeks to 22 weeks. Um, there is a further proposal um, to have an upper time limit in terms of completing that assessment because, as you know, at the minute, assessment can be an open-ended process. And in the past, not at the minute, but in the past, there have been significant delays in uh, assessing um, children and, and meeting their needs. There are a series of other smaller changes that are proposed, for example, making the annual review process um, more simplified, providing more advice and guidance um, to parents, but also in terms of how we work with health. And actually, we have already started some of that work with the introduction, for example, of electronic information sharing um, with standardised templates to, to seek health advice. So we are already seeing the outworkings of that increased level of cooperation. And Mark and I both co-chair uh, a steering group which um, regularly meets to oversee these improvements and to ensure that we are discussing the issues that need to be discussed and to prepare for readiness of implementation um, of the Act. Um, Mark, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I think you've covered some of the key points. Um, Ricky, I'd just say that we are committed to two things, I guess, um, working with education colleagues to, to speed up that assessment process, and we have um, invested in um, additional coordination functions. Um, there's a, an extra half million or so gone on Gone and send coordinators to work in the trust to to improve our performance uh, in turning around those those assessments, ensure that we've got a, a firm handle on that performance, and then also to to continue to look at the um, the capacity the the capacity that we have uh, for providing um, therapy provision and making sure there's there's a broader range of support for people at um, at the earliest possible stage um, uh, where they need that support. Okay, Qu quick response from me. Ricky, uh, Children's Commissioner said that the proposed revisions are not sufficient in reducing the time frame. Um, and th uh, they said that the limit should be increased only, the upper limit should be increased only to 28 weeks rather than the department's proposed 34 weeks. Your response? Um, we've discussed this a lot with our health colleagues, and Mark may have a view on this, but we have to put in upper time limits which are realistic and deliverable. So at the minute there are no upper time limits. Um, we have looked across jurisdictions on this particular issue. So the first thing I would say is in terms of reducing the overall time frame to complete an assessment from 26 to 22 weeks, we think that is fair and deliverable and in line with other jurisdictions. In terms of the upper time limit, we need to be mindful of the timescales which are required in trusts to be able to um, assess children, to um, provide the advice back through to the EA. So uh, again, we think the 34-week time limit is actually reasonable. Mark, is there anything you want to say from a health perspective on that? Well, if I, okay, yeah, Mark, go ahead, and then I'll have another supplementary. Go ahead, Mark. Okay, 
apologies, Chair. You just to say, obviously, some of these are cases that will. Yeah. Sorry, Mark. I think we're having some problems with your connectivity there. Hopefully not. Input. Pathetic fallacy for the connectivity of the Department of Health and Department Multiple of Education. Uh, can we get you back? Yep. Thanks. Nope. Ricky, can you? It's not my connection, is it? No. Can you hear me okay, Ricky? Yeah, I can hear you, Chair. We've lost Mark as well, unfortunately. Okay, if we, if we get Mark back in, we'll return to him. The, the other thing I was going to ask Mark, Ricky, which unfortunately falls to you instead, is the issue of valid exception. Uh, have, we, have we got clearer definitions in relation to valid exceptions, given that it seems quite a lot of those valid exceptions related to health department delays? Um, Chair, what I what I would say is um, yes, we have very um, clear guidance in relation to the proposed valid exceptions which remain valid. Valid. I think where the issue arises here is that um, it's in the application of those exceptions, and it's also in the tracking of those cases where exceptions have been raised. So in the past, and as we sit here today, a valid exception can be recorded and the assessment can drag on for many weeks and months and no one appears to be tracking that. Um, now I know the EA has taken steps to address that more recently, but in the proposed changes we're very clear that there needs to be a system in place to ensure that when a valid exception is raised by the Department of Health or the Health and Social Care Trust, that that is recorded, that is monitored and tracked, and if there is still uh, no advice received by a certain date, the EA will have to make an assessment based on the information that it has at that time. Okay. Uh, in terms of education and health cooperation, Children's Commissioner said that the proposed distinction between education and health provision is at odds with the ethos of cooperation that must be integral to the new SEND framework and the fulfilment of the legislative obligation in the SEND Act. The new regulations and code of practice propose that health and social care provision be listed in the non-educational provision category, which does not require the specification of services. Therefore, it seems health and education are being separated and the provision of health and social care within a statement is being almost degraded. However, we know that a child cannot learn or participate fully in their education if their health and social care needs are not met, more work needs to be done by the department on how it proposes to ensure that the EA and the health system, I presume that refers to key therapies, will be better able to cooperate and to collect the necessary information to meet all aspects of a child's need. How would you respond to that? So I endanger, Chair, of rehearsing everything that I said earlier on, which I will try um, not to do, but that goes back to the core issue that, we, that was raised by Pat. Uh, and the location in the statement of where health provision would actually be. Um, it, it remains a complex legal issue. It remains one which we need to consider further and we need to discuss further with um, our health colleagues and indeed with um, CLC um, and Nikki. Okay. So really there's probably nothing more I can say on that at this stage. Okay, well, it's, it's on the record there. I see that Mark is back, but I'm conscious I've taken up a fair amount of time with this supplementary. So I'll, I'll move on to Justin McNulty, MLA, if Justin's there. 
Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, folks, for your evidence today. Um, first, I'd like to welcome Diane and Harry up to our committee. I wish you best of luck going forward. And uh, we're all on the same ship here, all working to for the, the greater good and for the betterment of our children's education. I think it's crucially important. We've all got a really important role in that. Um, Ricky and uh, others, I guess I want, I want to answer this question from both an education and a health perspective. We've been diving into the nuts and bolts on the detail of this framework today. Tell me from a helicopter view, what is the, what is the job of this framework? From, a, from an education perspective, from a health perspective, and uh, an issue which raised with me firmly from uh, my family's is in relation to the, the compartmentalization of health and education not working together, working in silos and not working sensibly with a joint up approach to help children. So I'd like, to, I'd like your perspective from a helicopter view, what does this framework do? Justin, from my, from my perspective, um, I'm very clear that this framework is to strengthen um, the support that is received for children with SEM, um, to learn from lessons of the past, to introduce more simplified processes, to reduce unnecessary timescales and to try to reduce bureaucracy around this system. Um, it's very clear that it strengthens our cooperation with health. We already do have good cooperation with health at many, many levels, from policy de departmental level right down to an operational level um, on the ground between trusts and the EA. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to enact the changes that the Assembly brought in in 2016 and turn that into actual practical guidance for schools, parents, and health and social care trusts and children as quickly as possible. Mark, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, to, just to reiterate that, I think it is about trying to strengthen and simplify the process and enhance the support that's provided. And, and just to absolutely reinforce what Ricky said there, I think we have focused on enhancing the collaboration and cooperation at all levels between health and education. I'm, I'm sure there's more to do, but we are continuing to work at that um, and, tr and tr you know, the aim here is to ensure that this feels um, uh, seamless for those going through the system. Um, that is a, you know, a, a daunting ambition for us, but, but certainly what we are, what we are aiming at. Thank you. Uh, thanks, folks. I, I would like to see a little bit more fire in the valley. I would like to understand, I'd like to, to appreciate from you guys and from your teams that every day you go into work, what is your core objective to help kids to to be them, their best selves. I'm not getting that fire. I never get that sense. I'm getting the, the bureaucratic administrative uh, answers, which don't, don't don't demonstrate to me to the passion that you have to help kids be the best they can be. And I want to see more of that. I think it'll be helpful for kids, for parents, for teachers, for everybody involved. I, I want to press more on what was asked earlier in the, in the conversation. That was Rachel Hogan, in response to my questioning last week, told me that the rights of children are less protected as an outcome of this framework than they were before. Why would Rachel Hogan have that sense? I wouldn't entirely um, agree with that analysis, Justin, if, I, if I'm honest, because what we're proposing in terms of the statement is the same as currently exists. I think Rachel is basing that analysis on changes that were proposed in the 2016 regulations. Um, again, I don't want to rehearse what I've said previously, but it remains a complex legal area that requires us to consider this further and so let me give you the assurance that we do come in to work every day with the intention of supporting what I'm saying 
Um, <clears throat> so we do have that fire in our belly to do the best job that we can do. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I would stand by everyone that I work with in terms of their levels of commitment uh, and passion uh, and <clears throat> the amount of work that actually has been done during the course of the last 18 months. So <clears throat> we are here to do the best job that we can do. And that's probably all that I can say on that matter. Well, Reverend, I am delighted. I'm delighted to see that passion. I'm delighted to see how much how much it means to you. I'm absolutely delighted. And, and that's, it's, it's, we're all too we're robotic at times. All of us in, in public eyes, and I think for you to demonstrate how much it matters to you, that's very powerful and very important. I think that will send a loud message to, to your team and to the people watching this committee. So, I'm well done, Reggie. And that's no further questions. Thank you. Sorry, apologies. I was on mute there. Can I bring in Robbie Butler, MLA, please? Thanks. Yes, Chair, thank you so much for that. Um, you, you were muted for, for a wee minute or two there, so you were so. Um, no, listen, um, ju just, to, just to put something straight here uh, for one wee second, that's all right, um, just on, on Justin's comments, and Justin is we're all passionate uh, about what we do, and I, there's nothing, uh, there was nothing in anything that Justin said that I think could be, should or could be misconstrued. We're all passionate, and I do believe that when each and every one of us um, come to these things, we try and do it, we all do our best. These are complicated issues. Uh, and I don't doubt for a second uh, that anything that, that anybody is doing, whether that's been at the EA or the department, uh, whether or even us, uh, and, and, and we all have slightly different uh, opinions. So, uh, and I'm sure I'm speaking for Justin and the rest of the committee and wanting to pass on our thanks for everything that has happened and all of the, the, the issues that we've been trying to deal with with regard to a very, very complicated uh, uh, issue. And there are still great needs out there um, and things that need to be met. And hopefully, with the framework that's coming forward and the cumulative work, and the scrutiny that goes on it, we will uh, achieve uh, the, the best fit for, for these young people. So um, uh, so my first question, if you don't mind, sure, I don't mind who picks this up, okay? Um, so there's, there's a wee bit in there in and around that exceptional, and we're going to go back and it's been talked about a couple of times, but I think this is just one I'd like to see teased out. The 34 weeks, um, with, with, which has been described as a reasonable time frame, with exceptions, exempt, uh, in and around exceptions, I, I, I kind of get that because what we're working with is the Department of Education and the Department of Health. So we've got two massive uh, bodies trying to work together for the, the betterment of the kids. I have a wee technical question, guys, with regard to uh, maybe a referral that is made on the 1st of July. So what I'm wondering is, if 34 weeks was reasonable, um, and I'm not saying that I accept the debate, but if it was, and a referral came in on the 1st of July or, or after that, would 34 weeks apply? Uh, would 26 weeks apply? Or, or is that set aside? Because I'm thinking, um, if a child needs statement, that obviously um, those areas that that child needs support don't disappear when you know when we're on holiday and, and so on. So um, if, if something comes in in the first, does the top, clock start ticking on the 34 and 26 weeks and will that statement happen? Or is that set aside until September and then does it start um, ticking then, guys? Uh, Robbie, just in response to your question, um, the 26 weeks kicks in as soon as it starts, so we wouldn't be putting a holding period on from July to September, just because perhaps the summer it, it starts on, on the, the first day. 
So, so, so I, I just, just an issue of picking that up, okay? So regardless of the date that it goes in, the, the, the clock starts ticking, yeah? So, Correct. And, and is there any buyer to, um, is there any buyer to uh, a referral being made in after the 1st of July? Are, are these things set aside just for transparency for, for, for parents and those that are maybe entering the system? And even for me, who maybe is trying to help parents navigate, um, you know, the state banking process? Yeah, no, it's my understanding that the clock starts as soon as the um, the request comes in. Um, perhaps EA colleagues could maybe add a wee bit to that. Okay. Okay. Um, hello, everyone. Um, yes, I would agree with Julie. The, the clock starts ticking as soon as the referral is received. That's our open date for consideration of a statutory assessment. Sorry to kind of crush you there. If if you if you want to introduce who you are and and your your section in the department when you're speaking, I'd be most welcome. Thanks very much. Thank you. My name is Claire McKenna, and I'm responsible for the SEND implementation and development team. So I work closely across across the services and CYPS. So yes, absolutely. When the referral comes in for statutory assessment. The clock starts ticking, and that's that's the open date of the assessment and the consideration of that assessment. Also, for Robbie, I'd like to say to you that we do now have an online referral form which parents can use, and that has made the process much easier for parents to provide us with the information we need so we can move forward a little bit more quickly in making those decisions. I don't know if it's an unfair one for you at EA because I spent some time with EA last week and I forgot to ask this question. Uh, with regard to those online forms then coming into EA, um, and you know, previously one of the, the criticisms had been that everybody in, in who had been working on social form, the SEN stuff in, in EA, were working on different platforms, recording things in different manners and fashions and stuff. Is there conformity and uniformity now with regard to those uh, systems in EA? So that um, you know, regardless of where you're coming from, how you're contacting, it's all done on a, on a single kind of database, and, and everybody aware of what that approach is. Absolutely, Robbie. It's, it's a single referral form in, and we have a regional approach to processing those referrals. Um, and it's, there's a regional approach to um, analysing and moving forward on the data as well through our referral system. Okay. Okay. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to jump forward and assume that you know we think things that the, the, the framework comes in and things start to bed in. Uh, one of the issues that will happen, because it will happen whether it's good or not, is that, that parents and children will have a, a, a right to mediation and a right to appeal. Can you tell us and give us an update how that's going to operate? Um, and will the mediation rights and appeals run concurrently um, with the statement process? Sorry, I'm missing out on some of your question there. Would, would you mind repeating it? Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. So, so setting aside that, you know, whether it's the new framework or not, but just say we're, we're bedding in, and even if it's good, there will be the need for... Um, uh, children and parents to have access to mediation and the right to appeal um, under the new provisions. Can you tell us how that's going to operate, if there's any differences to how that's going to operate um, and what efficiencies are hoped to be achieved? Well, the parents do have a right of appeal at different decision-making points within the statutory assessment process and that's not been taken away. In fact, it's been strengthened um, and, and there are new rights of appeal through the framework as well. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Mediation. Mediation. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of us have been through this previously. So, I'm thinking specifically with the new framework and any improvements that mediation and uh, appeals, uh, you know, what that's going to be in terms of the fluidity and possibly uh, cutting down on the timeframes, you know. 
You're very welcome. Yeah. So yes, uh, I'm Tracy Logan. I am the lead for uh, Send Implementation and Development and Overall Management of the team. So the the new system with I mean we'll have global mediation who currently do the dispute avoidance and resolution. They've already got the contract with that and they will then do mediation and it will run alongside the appeals process. So uh, the, the time scales for that are built within then the, the appeal mechanism then to, to send us. So everything will run concurrently and alongside and we'd be working with global mediation on that then. Okay. Okay, thank you, Chair. That's, that's me. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, thank Robbie. You. Can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please? Thanks, Chair. Um, and thanks, everybody, for um, attending here this morning and for all your answers so far. Um, I know this has been discussed quite a bit, but I just kind of want to put it in layman's terms because you can get a bit confused with all the kind of fancy talk. But basically, so the special educational needs has now been split into two, so educational needs and non-educational needs. What I'd like to know is how it's defined. So if, for example, a child... Um, requires speech therapy and obviously given the significance of communication and communicational needs does that become an educational need or a non-educational need or who decides that there and um if like if the department of the department for education and education authority are responsible for delivering those educational needs who then is responsible for the non-educational needs and for delivering the service uh, in that case i don't know who'd like to pick that up but go ahead whoever would I think Nicola, that's probably one for the education um, authority to answer. So I'll invite um, either Claire uh, or um, Tracy to answer that initially. Okay, for the purposes of the, the statement and the, the present framework, speech and language has nearly always been seen as an educational need because it does have such a huge impact on a child's access to the curriculum. And going on that, we do, we do have to look at a case-by-case -case judgment. And, and I suppose it is a complex area of law. But for the purposes of a statement and child access in the curriculum, speech and language would generally come in under an educational need, and we wouldn't split that out. Okay, Claire, well, I'm using that as an example. What if it is like a mental health issue or something like that there as well? Like, how are they going to be defined? I think that uh, Sterling Tech here, um, the responsibility for children, young people, and interagency, public health agency. So, very valid point. Um, we have done quite a lot of work as. Um, uh, Mark has alluded to the same coordinators in each of the trusts and we have um, standardised our templates and our advice reports that are provided from trust to um, education authority for children undergoing statutory assessment and the advice then across paediatricians, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, speech and language therapy will in indicate the needs of the child and what that means for the children accessing the curriculum. So that makes it easier for education authority then to identify what the needs and the placement and the supports provided and what assist them in making that call and whether the, the requirements or the recommendations fit within um, the educational and non-educational. You did make that point about speech and language and phonology and literacy, so intrinsically linked. It's important that that is drawn out and then with the advice that we provide, that enables um, education authority and with a good cooperation, then further engagement can be developed to ensure that the right aspects are in the right part of the statement. Yeah, well, I suppose key to all this here is going to be that cooperation between education and health that has been discussed at length already. And I suppose just to go back to that point, one of the factors that all this framework should be based around is the Children's Cooperation Act, which that makes it a statutory duty for departments. Um, 
to to work together. Um, can you actually explain how the the Children's Cooperation Act actually informs this year framework? I think, Nicola, from my perspective, the department is obviously very aware of the duties arising from the 2015 Cooperation Act. Um, I also think that when the Assembly passed the primary legislation on SEND in 2016, um, it was aware of that as well, but it also sought to strengthen it further in relation to children with SEND. So that's why there are additional duties put in to the SEND legislation in terms of cooperation between health and education. One of the things that we will have to put in place is a joint plan of working between health and education, which spells out in very clear detail how both sides will actually work together. Um, we will also have to have that plan inspected every three years by RQIA and the ETI. So I think those proposals will actually give a level of assurance and comfort that um, you know, while we may say we're working well together, that will actually be independently mm -hmm. assessed as well. Yeah, well, as I say, I suppose that is the key thing is about the working together. And you're right, Dark QA and ETI need to be involved to make sure it is being done um, correctly. Um, thanks for that, Ricky. Um, I'll move on then to another topic, which we discussed at length. Um, we have been discussing at length anyway, but it was also mentioned last week with um, Nikki and the Children's Law Centre, and that is about restraint and seclusion in schools. And I know like the motion's been passed um, within the Assembly, and there, as I say, there has been a lot of discussion about it. But um, we all know that the current guidance um, is clearly in breach of international standards in regards to the use of um, restraint and seclusion as a, like, as a last resort. So can you kind of give me and the rest of the committee members some kind of reassure, reassurance that um, when it's finalised, they'll remove notions of discipline and protection of property and limit the use of restraint to intervention where the safety of the child and others are at risk? Um, Nicola, yes, I mean, as you know, I've been um, in front of this committee a couple of times on seclusion and restraint and updated you all on the, the review that the department's currently carrying out. And we're working very closely with, with Nicky CLC and others on that. There is a direction of travel within the review um, where we have identified a series of um, actions which will, we will probably put to the minister as concrete proposals, but we haven't finished the review process yet. So we would like to have some further engagement with parents, for example, and we're working um, with Nikki on that. So I don't really want to preempt the proposals that are going to go to the minister later uh, in the year, but I can give you an assurance that everything that we've heard so far around what is good practice, what is bad practice, and what we want to see um, is likely to move forward to, to the minister for approval. That's grand, Ricky. Thanks for that. And I'll, I'll not ask you to preempt, but would you agree with um, Children Commissioner's idea that seclusion should be removed altogether? I think I think we need to define seclusion in the context um, of children with additional educational needs and special educational needs, because, <clears throat> for example, I know um, of uh, children who are looked after who benefit from the use of trauma-informed spaces. Now, that is not children being locked in a room behind a closed door. That is a different thing altogether. That is about emotional regulation and supporting that child through a voluntary process. So what I'm saying is our guidance needs to specify all those various aspects and be very clear about what, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. 
And as we have put out in our interim guidance, it is not acceptable to have children locked in rooms. So again, I don't, I can't go into any more further detail, but we are working on, on that draft guidance as we speak. Okay, that's fair enough, Rick, and thanks for that. Um, my final question then is about um, support for um, schools and school staff and teachers um, if, for implementing the same framework and kind of the resources that will they'll be given and um, training actually as well. So last week um, we had discussed um, mandatory autism training and there's question marks around that there. Um, who, about the support for it, but um, I think it was Rachel that also mentioned about disability equality training, and she had kind of um, she showed her support for that there that teachers and teaching staff within schools should have like disability equality training. Um, so, what are your views on that? Where do you think what support do you think is needed? What support are you willing to give um, to schools? Uh, what's there already? And just what what are your opinions on that? So I suppose in terms of financial support, Nicola, um, the minister, previous minister, was able to secure additional resources which were distributed to all schools um, earlier this year, um, and that was really in preparation for implementation of the new SEND framework. That was 7.5 million. This year, a further 22 million has been secured and will be distributed across all schools, and that again is for the same purpose. Um, and we have raised a further pressure of 8 million. Um, which we see as required to assist schools in implementing the framework. So that's an annual amount of around 30 million, which we would like to get every year and distribute to schools. Um, there has been a significant training program to accompany the same framework um, preparation, and schools have already received significant amounts of training around the new duties uh, and what will be proposed. There are further um, plans for training later in the year um, or po possibly later next year in relation to uh, personal learning plans. But I think your point around disability training is something that we would probably need to take away and consider further and talk to our, um, our colleagues in the department because um, there's the aspect of ongoing training for existing teachers and then there's the issue of what training is provided for newly qualified teachers and I think it's a congested space, um, the time frame in terms of newly qualified teachers and, and the aspects of training that are required there. There's not a lot of scope in terms of adding in additional requirements. Um, but I think it's something that we probably need to take away and come back to you on to give you a, a more comprehensive response, Nicola. That's okay, Regina. So that's just what uh, my final point there. I think that we need to um, consider and remember is about ongoing training, and as you said, for new, newly, newly qualified um, teachers as well. Yeah. well. Listen, thanks very much to everyone there for your answers, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Ricky, time time doesn't really allow us to go into the level of detail that we need to in relation to this today. Um, and I, I presume you had the. Um, official report of the evidence that the committee facilitated from the Children's Commissioner and Children's Law Centre on behalf of the Children with Disabilities Strategic Alliance last week. Is that fair to presume? Well, yes, we're aware of the briefing. Um, I don't think we have the official um, record of it, but obviously we, we have seen it. Well, we can, we can provide that to you. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the aim of the framework is to speed up statutory assessment 
cap the length of time during which valid exceptions can be used and to promote inclusions in schools. That that's my understanding. And I, I you know, whether people are are asking for um, more clarity and more obvious um, language and commitment in relation to that. Um, that that is our our task is to is to achieve that that aim collectively. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'm encouraged that you commit your meeting with the children's commissioner and the children's law centre because they have wide ranging concerns and and I would imagine wide ranging. Um, suggestions to how to address those concerns so i don't think we need to rehearse all of them today um and in closing there's a couple of things that i would like to raise and and another issue was that the 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 journey from stage one to stage three i know the stages are are changing in terms of numbers but um i think there was an acknowledgement from children's law center children with disability strategic alliance that ultimately we don't want um, anyone to have a statutory assessment unless they need one. Um, want them to be helped early, um, and and maybe then um, that early intervention will um, serve a, a constructive purpose. But the distress, trauma, and frustration that is caused um, when that early intervention is not in place is is significant. So, in terms of stage three services, the clear evidence that the committee received was that. Those services such as dyslexia support, autism support, behaviour support, access to educational psychology are all under real strain. Children waiting for a year, sitting in a classroom, unable to read and write, which they'd be able to do if they were getting that specialist support. And the professionals who work in the services are, are, who want to do that work are, are saying that they can't cope, uh, that they need help, they need additional staff. Uh, in order to meet that that demand, is this framework going to respond to those issues? This framework chair is not not designed to respond to those issues because they are operational issues. This framework is about the policy and legislative basis to bring forward reform, but it it's not standalone. It does have to work, um, complementing the operational changes and the reforms which the education authority is bringing forward. And I think okay. you, you have received briefing on the various projects which are underway within the EA, um, and a lot of them are in the space of the services which you have just listed there. So okay. it's a program that's probably going to take further time, but the, but the two programs are working very closely together. Okay, well, are we, are we addressing those operational issues as well then? Are we allocating additional resources? It'd be good to hear from the EA on that front as well. Well, the EA is, is preparing um, a business case uh, for its strategic development program, which the department has not um, received yet. So that business case will inform the resources that are needed to make the changes required across the various services and deliver those projects. Okay. Can the EA give us an update in relation to that? Um, I can't really. The business case has been um, prepared and will be provided to DE. There's no doubt that additional resource is needed to bring the framework forward um, and, and, and realise all of the enhanced duties through the framework. Um, in terms of services, that is one of the projects within the SEND Strategic Development Programme and it, we are looking towards a more integrated model of, of service support for schools, children and families. Okay. Yeah. Look, okay. One of, one of the, some of the key concerns that we, we've received as a committee then is, uh, and I realise these are serious concerns, so, you know, you'll, you'll, 
uh, take them in the good faith that they're being shared, Ricky, that, that the framework is not in compliance with Section 75, that equality duties have not been fully complied with, particularly in Section 14, which is on inclusion, um, that there is a degree of, of, of shock in relation to that, um, that it's not compliant with disability equality law and not compliant with children's rights under the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. Um, it needs to be deleted and rewritten from scratch from a, a human rights point of view. Um, I'll, I'll give you three main issues here. Maybe you'll respond to them. Uh, the gateways to accessing provision and are in Articles 3, 15, and 16 of the current Education NI Order 1996. Those are parts of the system that appear to have been under attack in the revisions made to this framework. Article 3 defines special educational needs. In the Code of Practice, special needs are treated almost as exceptional needs. And they're not exceptional educational needs. They're special educational needs, as this is about children um, who need that uh, additional support. Uh, it's a very wide, open statutory definition, and the Code of Practice is trying to narrow that definition, uh, uh, argued unlawfully, and that there would be a reminder to the Department that Article 3 has not been amended. Last uh, a couple of things, Article 15 is the gateway to statutory assessment. And there's concern that the way in which the code of practice is drafted brings resource considerations into Article 15 on statutory assessments in law. Resources are not relevant to that assessment of need. The child's special educational needs should drive the process, not the availability of resources. We, how would you respond to those concerns? I think I would need time to come back fully, Chair, um, on those issues. Generally, what I would say is, um, you know, we have sought to improve how services are actually delivered for children with SEND. We have not sought to do anything in contravention of any um, existing law. Where we can um, strengthen or revise elements of the Code of Practice, of course, we are happy um, to look at that. And where we can make the regulation stronger, we are indeed again happy to look at that. I okay. think these are issues that we will we will discuss further with CLC and, and Nikki when we meet them. I think that engagement is going to be really important, Ricky. Um, okay, Mark, Department of Health has been fairly quiet. Anything you'd like to say in closing? No, perhaps just to pick up on the the point I think you made, Chair, around. Um, you know, providing the support and and that early intervention piece. And I know Geraldine and EA colleagues were were hosting a workshop, um, I think last week, um, which was very well attended from across the system, looking at just that point. How do we how do we strengthen that early intervention piece? And certainly, uh, one of our focuses on health is to try within um, health is to try and move away from that that focus on um, you know pushing people through a process of a. Um, a formal assessment to, to try and focus on getting the, the support in that people need at the earliest point and it not being just about diagnosis, um, but the focus being on support. So maybe just to, to, to add that at the end, Chair, if that's okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, as I said, we're, we're tight for time today, but I'm encouraged that there is a commitment to have that uh, detailed engagement with the Children's Commissioner Children's Law Centre and therefore the Children with Disability Strategic Alliance. Ricky, I think it's important that time is taken to get this really important piece of work um, as as best and fit for purpose as we possibly can. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely, Chair. And I suppose what something that we haven't mentioned, if you would permit me, is just to say that coming out of the PAC review on this, there there's another programme of work which will inform how we deliver SEND support, and that includes an independent review of existing SEND provision, including benchmarking against other jurisdictions and looking at academic research for higher rates of SEND in Northern Ireland. So there are lots of work streams on the go here at the same time, and it's really about us trying to bring them all together um, to improve outcomes for children with SEND. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Ricky, and to all witnesses. I'm not list all of you. I might be here for another five, ten minutes, but we appreciate all of your time today and all of the work that you're doing on this uh, important issue. Um, we'd be glad to reconnect with you after you've had that engagement um, with the Children's Commissioner and Children's Law Centre and the CDSA and, and wish you well in the, the, the work programme that you have ahead to, to make sure this is fit for purpose. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and keep them there for this session? Clark, any uh, actions or requests for additional information resulting from the briefing before we move to the next one? Um, well, first of all, um, we said we would provide the Hansard of last week's um, <clears throat> meeting to the department. Um, and as you said, Chair, that engagement that um, they're about to undertake with CLC and Nikki um, is, is very important to um, balance out these, these issues. Um, the, the piece of information that we don't have that might help is the EA business case and the budget lines for EA as well are kind of still up in the air. You know, there's a lot of work going on in this area and a lot of resources required and capacity is required. Um, so we can maybe ask, um, you know, for early sight of, of that when it's when it's completed for the minister. Okay. Members, any additional comments or questions to add before we move to the next briefing? Content with those actions. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Okay, thank you, members. I move to agenda item six then, and this is the Department of Education briefing on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Can I refer members to a cover note from the committee clerk at page 128, briefing paper from the Department of Education at 130, Assembly Research and Information Service briefing paper on the implementation of the UNCRC at page 151, and Hansard of Last week's briefings on the UNCRC from the Children's Commissioner and Children's Law Centre are in tabled items. Can I welcome then Paul Brush, Director of Youth and Early Years at the Department of Education, Paul Wright, Head of Children and Young People's Strategy Team at the Department of Education, and advise witnesses that the committee will allocate if the witnesses are there, Clark. <laughs> are they there? I think you're muted, Evening. I beg your pardon. They're just joining. Okay, no problem. Oh yes, there needs to be a bit of a, a bit of a handover. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So well, I'll just uh, re-welcome uh, Paul Brush, Paul Wright, and Pamela Baxter 
who is Children and Young People's Strategy Team at the Department of Education. Paul, I was just advising you that the committee will allocate approximately 10 minutes for any opening statement, uh, follow that by questions from the members, which can obviously be answered by any of the witnesses. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Chair. Um, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to give you an update on the UNCRC reporting process and a bit of an indication as to where we are in that process uh, and to get the committee's views. I just want to introduce, uh, you've already mentioned, um, we have Paul Wright who leads the team who's um, involved in this coordination work and Pamela Baxter and Pamela has been the person engaging with other departments because obviously there's a lot of input required right across the um, various NICS departments. Just a wee bit of background then in terms of what the, the process is all about and what the requirements are. Um, the UK reports periodically, um, broadly about every six years, um, to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child about the UK's progress in implementing the UNCRC. This is about basically giving an account of, of how they're doing and the most recent round of that reporting has just commenced. Um, in reporting to the UNCRC, the UK seek a combined response from the um, devolved administrations um, and some of the Crown dependencies. The combined UK response must be submitted to the UN Committee by February 2022. So that's the sort of deadline for the UK to have its um, report um, provided. We will provide input to inform that UK report um, and this department, DE, coordinates that input on behalf of the NI executive. Um, as part of the process, the UN Committee asked non-governmental organisations to submit reports in advance of the UN coming up with what their questions would be to the UK. Um, the Northern Ireland report was prepared by the Children's Law Centre, and I know you've heard from them, um, I think it was last week. And they prepared a, a report on behalf of the NGA, NGOs in Northern Ireland and published that report in December 2020. So that's an important contextual piece. Um, we've been liaising with the Children's Law Centre and Nikki in terms of how we can, how they can support us in our preparation of responses and how they can be involved in that process. And we can talk a little bit more about that in due course. Um, as I say, the Department of Education in England is the coordinating UK government department for this work. Um, they initially came out to us a couple of weeks ago seeking our responses by the 9th of July. We went back to them to say, look, that was really going to be very, very challenging given the complexity and range of issues. There's um, 115 separate areas that Northern Ireland needs to provide a position on. So we've we've moved got them to move that to the 9th of August. But we've said to them, look, if there are particular difficulties or challenges in any of these areas, that may slip further. But we're going to do our best to try and meet that that deadline. So it's the 9th of August we're now working towards. In terms of just understanding the D DFE England's timeline, um, 
although they don't have to submit the report until February 2022, they have a couple of key milestones that they need to meet um, for their own sort of internal approvals that is dictating to some extent our initial um, deadline. The first is their own minister, Vicky Ford, is wanting a report, a sort of first draft of the UK report towards the end of September. So that's a sort of key point at which the UK submission will start to uh, materialise. And then uh, it's to be submitted to the Prime Minister's office by December of this year. So another key point in the in the timeline. Um, they have confirmed to us that the Northern Ireland responses will be interspersed within the UK report, so we we won't have a sort of standalone section. Um, apparently, that was how it was done last year or last time rather, and the UN said they liked it rather than having separate sort of sections for the different jurisdictions. That the issues were addressed in a sort of more holistic and, and coordinated way. There will there are restrictions on the size of the report that the UK is allowed to submit. So. Um, there's no doubt that they will um, edit and truncate what we provide them, but we are trying using the templates that we've issued to departments to try and ensure that what we give them is succinct to the point and really, uh, I suppose, uh, brings out the key issues um, in terms of both progress and indeed where there hasn't been progress. But um, there will be undoubtedly a need to look at what the UK has included at those various points, both in September and then in December, and have further consideration and review around whether we consider that to be a fair representation of what we provided them. Um, they have confirmed we will have opportunity to review it at that, those points in September and December, and we would envisage um, quite significant sort of scrutiny and approval um, processes at those stages once we see um, how the Northern Ireland material has been um, incorporated. Um, as I say, the UK report's due to be submitted to the UN by February 2022. Then there's a series of engagements that follow um, really over the next year um, before and we, we understand the absolute final point now for the publication of the UN committee's concluding observations is likely to, to slip to January 2023. So there will be hearings and various opportunities for us to um, give the Northern Ireland position between the point at which the UK's report is submitted and the final UN concluding observations. So what's our role and where are we? Well, um, we're the coordinating team for this work um, and the coordination work has commenced. It's underway. The DE Permanent Secretary wrote to Permanent Secretary colleagues um, on the 9th of June requesting they, that they now submit to us their uh, input on those 115 issues that I, that I referred to earlier. Um, a number of those um, areas may just require an input from an individual department, but uh, certainly a significant proportion of them will require input from more than one department. Um, some of them 
input from a number of departments. So we have provided um, uh, our assessment of who we think should lead on each issue. Um, we've said to that lead department, if you disagree with that or think that you shouldn't be lead, come back and tell us. But it's your responsibility to engage with other departments and ensure a comprehensive response is provided. Um, they also are being asked to clear those inputs through the relevant policy ministers. So um, if two or three departments have input to a particular issue, then the ministers for those departments um, will be asked to clear the input for that particular response. And it's quite a tight time frame given that need for coordinated um, activity. We've asked departments to come back to us by uh, the 9th of July so that we have a month to sort of QA what they give us to um, go back to them if we feel we need more or if there isn't perhaps the, the level of detail that's being sought. We also want to use that time to engage again with the Children's Law Centre and NICI around, you know, um, get their assessment of how we're proposing to respond. So that's the sort of timeline that we're embarked upon. Um, we haven't received any of those responses back yet, but we, we wouldn't necessarily have expected to by this stage. Um, so to conclude, we're at the very beginning of the process. Um, the work is underway. We will, of course, brief the committee when the detail starts to come in. Um, I'm conscious that a lot of that will be during summer recess, but of but you know we're happy to provide a written update when we get those responses and perhaps schedule another uh, oral briefing early um, in September. Um, and happy to answer any questions. Thanks, Paul. That that sounds like a useful uh, approach, and we look forward to engaging with you again. Um, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is, is obviously a, a vital minimum standard of children's rights and it was ratified by the UK government, I think, in 1991, almost 30 years ago. And its importance exemplified in the fact that it's been cited in our domestic legislation, including in Children's Commissioner legislation and the Children's Services Cooperation Act 2015. It, at its core, it's an assessment of the degree to which the UK government and devolved administrations are implementing the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So to what, to what degree is the Northern Ireland Executive implementing the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and how are you getting on with the implementation of previous recommendations from the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child? Well, Chair, to some extent, those are exactly the questions that will be addressed in the um, templates that have now issued to departments. Um, a number of those are for this department, um, but a, a, a good range of them aren't. In terms of giving you a sense of where those issues lie across departments, um, justice would come out on our assessment as the top um, department in terms of the numbers of areas that they will be asked to report on. Um, health, I think, is the next highest, um, followed by education. 
and then you're into communities and um, TEO in terms of some of the more sort of cross-cutting areas. So um, we're not at the stage yet where we can give um, an, an a sort of an assessment of how well we're doing. That's the whole, sort of the point of this process. And the, the responses will, um, I suppose, shine a light on where things have or have not improved. And, you know, I think that we've uh, we've already said that the fact that there has been a delay in a, a number of areas since the last uh, of these assessments in terms of there being no um, executive for three years, other areas hadn't progressed. There's undoubtedly going to be some areas where there isn't a lot of progress to report, um, but we will that will become clear when we pull together the, com the composite list of issues. In terms of how Northern Ireland generally is, um, I suppose, um, applying the UNCRC, yes, you refer to various pieces of legislation which um, embed it. There's also, of course, the Children and Young People Strategy, which I think is probably one of the main developments since the last of these. Um, assessments and the focus that it brings on a rights-based approach across departments and of course it has it at its core the UNCRC principles so we will be able to point to that although of course it too is at, we're in the early stages of rolling it out and the delivery plan will be the real um, evidence of embedding the rights across departments. Okay, and in our session with the Children's Commissioner and the Children's Law Centre, a very strong case was made for the development of a Northern Ireland specific report to assist and support the legislative function in the Northern Ireland Assembly, uh, to assist and support policymakers to identify key priority areas for children and to track progress on implementation of the NCRC in Northern Ireland through to the next reporting cycle, will you be producing a, a Northern Ireland specific report? Um, the Children's Law Centre uh, met and the Commissioner's Office met with the previous Education Minister probably about a month or so ago and this was one on, the, on this whole process um, and this was one of the issues they raised and um, the position, the minister's position at that point was, we will look at that um, at the time when, when we get to that stage. There clearly is um, the potential as a minimum to um, make public the responses on these templates for the 115 issues. Um, I think there will be a further question around whether there would be added value in turning that into some sort of bespoke NI report. Um, last time around, I understand Northern Ireland didn't do a separate report, um, but Scotland and Wales did. And that um, is something that we would look at. But in terms of, I suppose, even providing visibility, a public visibility on how and what progress has been made, um, the 115 completed templates which we are will ultimately be providing to the UK saying you can publish these in your report um, I can't see any reason why we wouldn't as a minimum 
um, be prepared to make those available. But whether we, whether there's value in turning that into some sort of bespoke report, the minister is committed to looking at that near the time. Okay, I, I, I'll propose to the education committee that we uh, support the call for that to be turned into a Northern Ireland specific report. Th thanks for your, your uh, answers so far. I'll bring other members in at this point and call Pat Sheehan, Deputy Chairperson. Thanks, Chair, uh, and thanks for that presentation. Uh, I'm, I'm less concerned about the process for reporting uh, than I am about specific issues. Um, and I particularly wanted to ask you about the issue of uh, restraint and seclusion and about the interim guidance that was released recently by the department. Now, under the UNCRC, um, the use of restraint is exclusively to prevent harm to the child or to others. Uh, unfortunately, the interim guidance here frames the use of restraint in the context of preventing a pupil from engaging in any behaviour that would be prejudicial to the maintenance of good order and discipline. Uh, so, how can you reconcile those two positions? Or could you try to explain how they could be reconciled? Thanks. Um, well, that's not an area that I have the policy responsibility for, but it's an area that this department will be has been asked to provide um, a response to the UNCRC question on. So, um, the, I, you know, the session this session this morning isn't, I'm afraid, going to be able to go into the specific questions that have been asked because, in the vast majority, almost exclusively in all cases. The people around the table here aren't the individuals who are going to be providing the answers. We're coordinating the process, and I know that will probably be frustrating that we can't now delve into the answers. But as well as I can give you the assurance that the team who has been responsible within this department for developing the Northern Ireland position on this issue and on others is now being challenged to provide a response to the UNCRC requirement. And as I say, in July, you will have visibility on how they have reconciled those two positions or otherwise. Um, so to some extent, um, I'm not, well, I'm not able to respond now, but that information will become apparent when we get the responses back from the relevant policy teams. Okay, well, well, fair enough. I, I appreciate that you're not directly involved in those particular policy areas, and and you say you're responsible for coordinating the response to. Uh, I presume your response goes to the British government, and then they make the uh, the overall response. Um, and and so, are there any? areas of policy that you might be able to comment at all, at all on? Well, I suppose my, my, the area that I would be able to comment on is the sort of value that the children and young people strategy brings to the overall process and the, the I suppose, um, development and improvement that it will provide in our ability to monitor 
um, the well-being of children and young people long term. Quite a number of the questions are around data and are you do you have the, the arrangements in place to measure improvements? Are you aware um, of how the lives of children and young people are being impacted at the sort of higher level? And there have been challenges on the UK in the past that the data just isn't there and there isn't the level of ongoing monitoring of sort of impact of various policies on children's lives and you know that's one area that I'm responsible for which is the strategy and the subsequent delivery plan and the indicators that are being produced so I think we will have a good story to present on that area but it's as I say it's still in its in its infancy and the strategy has yet to sort of work its way through um, look, my areas of responsibility, I should maybe have said at the beginning, are early years, this sort of strategy work, and then youth, uh, the youth service and youth provision. Um, and most of the issues emerging are more in the sort of school sector, like you've described, some of the areas of restraint, things yeah. like um, selection, a number of the areas that colleagues will be have policy responsibility for. Okay, well, and that's fair enough. I wonder, could it take you to the area of mental health? Because you talked about recording and monitoring in terms of the strategy. And I've recently had discussions with, uh, with schools and pastoral support leaders um, who, who say they are under severe pressure in terms of mental health and well-being of of, of of young people in schools. And that has been added to greatly uh, by the outworkings of the pandemic and the lockdowns and, and so on. And we had officials in recently to the committee and, and we were asking about access to counselling services and waiting lists and so on. And there was some confusion, I thought, among officials as to uh, the uh, accuracy of the data that they were giving us around uh, waiting lists. And so, so how important uh, is it, in your view, that proper information and data is collated, uh, is monitored and recorded? in relation to an issue such as mental health? Well, um, as, the, as the saying is, what gets measured gets done. So um, analysing and being able to measure and record um, your impact has to be central to any policy intervention. And in terms of the children and young people's strategy, the very first outcome is around physical and mental health. So it's right up there at the top in terms of the strategy. And as I said before, the strategy will, there will be a delivery plan that's currently in development that will have a whole range of actions and how those actions will be measured. And the area of mental health will be included within that. Now, again, it's not my policy area, but if, there are, if you have specific sort of concerns around the data available or the, the, the extent to which we can monitor and measure that issue, 
then I'm happy to take that away and get um, a response for the committee on, on that issue. Well, well uh, where, where in the strategy does the new emotional health and wellbeing framework fit? It'll be in that in that first outcome. There will yeah. be a, there... and and I suppose the reason I'm I'm raising this particular issue is because that framework was developed prior to COVID, and and according to the people we're talking to within the education system, the pandemic has worsened the situation immeasurably. Uh, so. What value can we place on this framework if it's uh, already out of date? I suppose that's the question I'm asking. Well, again, that's that's a question I would have to take for policy colleagues. Um, but I'm I'm sort of happy to even reflect your points as we develop the delivery plan. Like the delivery plan should be bang up to date, and therefore it shouldn't just be relying on something that was developed pre-pandemic. Um, and we will, you know, happy to take that challenge as we see what policy colleagues are proposing to put into the delivery plan. But if there's a specific requirement to sort of assess the sort of currency of the framework, then that's probably something that would require a, a specific response from from those that are responsible for it. Okay, Pat. Yeah, and, and just finally, and, and that would be necessary then to ensure appropriate resources were uh, allocated to that particular framework? Yes, like again, I'm sort of focusing on the delivery of the strategy, which will have the framework as one of the instruments. Um, and in the, in the delivery plan for the strategy, there will be a commitment, obviously, not to have put something in that you haven't got the resources to deliver. So that's inherent in, in how the delivery plan shapes up. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Pat. Can I, Clark, can I check if Diane uh, is still connected? No. no. Okay, that's fine. I'll move a call to uh, Justin McNulty, MLA, please. Thanks, sure. Thanks, Paul, Paul, and Pamela for your evidence. Um, can you give me an assessment of the way children have been treated throughout the pandemic? Well, um, from my own area of early years, um, I think there's been, you know, it's been very challenging as it has across the piece. There have been specific difficulties for children in that sort of preschool early year stages because, you know, remote learning just didn't work particularly well for that cohort. Um, and we have obviously we had challenges with the likes of Sure Start um, trying its best to deliver um, some sort of continuity of service for children. Um, from families who were being hardest hit by the pandemic and perhaps didn't have the resources to help to mitigate some of the issues that it was bringing upon them. So uh, there, undoubtedly there have been um, real difficulties for that sector. Um, that's why I think the minister was so keen to get the likes of Sure Start opened up again as quickly as it could be in a safe way. It's now fully operational. 
Um, the preschool year again went online for most of, well, a lot of last year. There was a big effort to try and develop materials, um, online resources that would be relevant for that age group, but it hasn't been easy. And to some extent, the very fact that the Engage program um, for next year, um, the fact that it will now reach down to the preschool year um, reflects the fact that there's a, a growing awareness that children of that age missed out on so much, just basic socialization, the very fact that you know their parents couldn't take them out to mums and toddlers groups, they couldn't go to their usual um, you know baby massage groups, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I, I'm sort of aware of this because I have a, a, a two and a half year old and I sort of know what what they rely on and what um, you know is often an absolute lifeline in that particular uh, year. So it's been very difficult and not only for the children but for the parents you know and the mother, the mums often in that situation and perhaps even more so new mums in that first year often on maternity leave like maternity leaves have been different than 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 anyone would have expected for that period when a lot of it has been spent you know shut up in the house and therefore i think what we're now trying to do the minister has increased the budget for sure start in the coming year there's been an increase in budget for the pathway fund for the coming year all in an aim to try and enhance the provision as we start to emerge for that group i know i'm only talking about one little cohort but that's my particular policy responsibility um, and I think there are efforts that we can point to to try and address some of the difficulties that have been created but of course um, it's difficult to know just how much will be needed. Would your assessment be that the rights of the child have been compromised as an outcome of the pandemic? I think that's a, diff a more difficult thing to sort of conclude on at this stage. Like I, I, I think more broadly, it'll be interesting to see the responses we get to this exercise that we have commissioned, um, and even a, a, a around what the chair was asking regarding a Northern Ireland report. I think that's probably where an NI report could go a bit further than just be the sort of sum total of the contributions there you know there there will be an opportunity i think to reflect on the contributions and consider you know what do they tell us in totality and what are the recurring themes and um what might be uh, the policy response and some of that i think could certainly be drawn out um, once we get all that material back and it would it's imperative of us that we use it and that this just doesn't become some sort of coordination exercise we fill in the templates we send them off and that's it that we actually make use of it and use it constructively to inform um, the way ahead and it's coming at quite a good time you know the time that the fact that this only happens every six years or so um and initially we sort of thought oh you know it's going to be difficult to do this at this point when we're still really trying to um, implement recovery programs and recovery initiatives but actually it could be pretty well timed to give us a bit of a sense of uh, where, where what the current situation is
Okay, um, what's your understanding of restraint and seclusion and the practices there and, there and the impact of that on the rights of a child? Again, I, I'm not able to comment on that area. It's not my area. I'm more than happy to um, make sure that when the responses are provided that that is fully articulated. We've asked for that from the relevant policy teams and it will be something that the committee can scrutinise in due course. Okay, thank you. Uh, school transfer. How have the rights of the child been impacted by the school transfer process uh, which has been implemented as an outcome of the pandemic? Again, I'm I, sorry, I'm not in a position to comment on that. Again, it's not my area. This is, uh, I know this is probably frustrating because the, the, the committee will obviously want to get into the nitty gritty of, of the issues. Um, I can again provide assurance that that's an area that, that that's, you know, will be touched on in the responses. You know, if it isn't, it's something that the committee can write to the department and ask for. Like, I suppose you could. There's a, an opportunity to use this process um, as a bit of a springboard. And I, I suppose I'm also aware that, um, you know, there are issues within the NGO report that are, haven't necessarily made it into the UNCRC list of questions. Um, what we're focused on is responding to the list of UNCRC questions. But if, if there are gaps and there are other issues that the committee wants to explore, then it's of course at liberty to do so. The tech area for us, I think we need to uh, interrogate is uh, Brexit and the impact of Brexit on the rights of a child, specifically in relation to Irish passport holder children. How are their rights impacted as an outcome of Brexit? Given this is a UK, um, program that you're involved with, with, how does that protect the rights of Irish passport holders, people who perceive themselves as being Irish, how have their, their rights impacted as an outcome of Brexit? Um, I think there needs to be a special focus on, well, you, you actually, can you answer that question first, please, before we move on to where, where I think there needs to be all our focuses, please? Well, the, the, the implications or impact of Brexit was, um, as you will have been aware, be, raised very clearly in the NGO report, in the Children's Law Centre report that they provided to the UN uh, to inform their questions uh, of the UK government. And they had um, articulated in some detail um, their, the NGO assessment of the implications of Brexit on children's rights. Now, it's interesting that the UN list of issues um, to the UK doesn't really go into that. And the list of questions that we have now been provided um, to respond to doesn't really go into that. So, if there's if there if the committee has a specific interest in exploring the sort of Brexit implications, then I think that's something that you would have to um, request uh, sort of outside of of this process. Obviously, um, it will have implications for other departments you know a lot of the what you're describing is probably um it partly in the territory of, of teo and others but it's not something that's actually going to be addressed 
as a result of these 115 issues. Certainly by my reading of them, I, I didn't see anything there that was specifically Brexit-related. Paul, can I, I ask you? I did do a word search for Brexit in there, just to clarify this morning, and I didn't actually see too much in the way of that. And I did read through um, the NGO report last night. Uh, like you say, um, a lot of the questions don't appear to have been carried across. May certainly in the way that they were framed by the Children's Law Centre, Maybe some of the issues are maybe scattered generally in, in the NCRC requests, uh, but not specifically on Brexit and, and, and the question that the, um, the member asked there. I think it's a very pertinent issue in the context of our folks. I think it's something that should be interrogated thoroughly. Well, certainly it's something that we're happy to take away, and um, I, I imagine. You know, the UK have asked us for input on those 115 issues that the UN have asked them about. Um, I would, I, I could imagine that if we provide them with information above and beyond that, the chances of them including it may be slim. But you know, if the committee um, is of the view that that the implications of Brexit are such that something should be provided on that. Um, then we can certainly take that away and consider how that might be done. Okay, thank you. I think there needs to be a focus on our, our emphasis on uh, dyslexia and how children with dyslexia are impacted in terms of their rights, uh, special education needs, obviously eating disorders, um, drug addiction, mental health was mentioned already. Um, I think it's a, it's a children's right to understand about resilience and is that happening currently in terms of developing them as, as people? Uh, so there's just some further comments. I appreciate my time is now passed. So listen, thank you very much, Chair, for indulging me. No problem. Thanks, thanks, Justin. Just to echo some of Justin's points, that as, as Justin referred to, the Children's Law Centre evidence uh, noted concerns about the impact of Brexit on children's rights, um, concerns about potential impact on peace process, and concerns about... Uh, citizens' rights, particularly in relation to those holding Irish passports retaining EU citizens' rights and those holding British passports losing access to EU citizens' rights. So I, I presume that's something that will be raised with you in due course, but uh, Justin has referred to that today as well, obviously. Can I just ask one other question as well? What, what is the, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child recommendation to Northern Ireland in relation to post-primary transfer? Um, what is their question on it? What is, their previous, what is their previous recommendation? What is their question? Um, I don't have their previous recommendation in front of me, Chair, but I'm happy to write to the committee with that. Um, and I don't know if they've asked a specific question this time on it or not. Again, I would need to just go through the detail and come back to you on that. Okay, fairly certain they have. Um, and you would think that would be something that would be active given the situation that we find ourselves in. So we'd appreciate you coming back on that. Thanks. Okay, can I bring in Robbie Butler, MLA, please? Thanks. Absolutely, Chair. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for the evidence so far. Guys, just to pick up on um, a point the Chair made and then a point that um, Justin made. Um, none of this could, should be looked at in isolation. So the Chair has uh, recognised the, the report and the, the, um, 
possibly some reports that were made before on transfer testing, and that has been a very live topic for over a year now for us guys. So I think it would be interesting if, if that was looked at, that they would also look at the impact on the use of the DE guidance this year with regard to us maybe charting a better pathway for these kids. So looking at it in the round. And similarly, and Justin's point about Brexit is correct in saying that the, uh, the um, Children's Law Centre last week did mention Brexit and the uh, impact on young people, particularly around the Irish identity and EU identity, but that had been written pre-protocol. And I have a concern with regard to the protocol with uh, regards to the loss of um, uh, identity and that type of stuff in terms of the British context and also in context to the peace process. And we will see, unfortunately, for this last few months that those are significant issues which do impact on our children. So I think none of these things can be taken in isolation. And if we're going to look at any of them, we, we take them all on the account. I'm sure the committee will look at that in terms of if we're going to ask for another um, piece of work. In, in regards to data collection for children with regard to these reports, is there any uniformity uh, as to where, how that is done? And what is the basis for quantifying the accuracy of the data that is collected on children from Northern Ireland and presented in terms of this report which goes forward to the, to the UK submission? Um, well, we... Uh, in addition to asking for individual departments to provide input on the data that would relate to the policy area that they're responsible for, we have also involved NISRA, the Northern Ireland Statistics and Research Agency, in um, the, I suppose, the team effort uh, that will be required to respond to this um, exercise. So NISRA, um, there are NISRA statisticians in pretty much all departments who will be involved in helping and quality assuring the responses to those questions that relate to data. But then overall, sort of NISRA corporate is aware of the exercise and we've asked for, for their involvement and their help. Uh, probably when we get responses back in July, I see there being a period of two or three weeks there where we do a bit of QAing. We bring in the sort of the analysts from NISRA to say, you know, do you think this is the best way to respond to this? Is the data source being used reliable? Um, or are there others that have been missed? So yes, there's a data agenda as running through this, and we have the, the NISRA uh, team involved with us on that. Okay, thank you. That, that gives me a, 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 a bit of confidence in that. Um, one of the issues that there is um, uniformity and unanimity in, in the, the, the Education Committee, I do believe, is in around the flexible school start age. So Northern Ireland has uh, been recorded as having the lowest uh, start age um, with regard to young people. And I think there's certainly the feeling, particularly around premature babies and maybe young people who have a, a later birth date, with regard to the impact on educational education and, and outcomes. Um, has that been picked up in the report and is that an issue? Has it been picked up? I'm not aware of seeing, I don't think that's been picked up by the UN CRC. It's not an issue that they've asked us about. Okay, um, yeah, that's fine. Probably, we, we've been discussing that we may refer, I don't know, we'll speak to the chair after and see if we're going to refer um, to that. Um, and just a final question then, um, uh, there's no training, I believe, with regard to the UNCRC for any professionals working with children. Uh, I may be wrong, but can you confirm that? And if there, are there any plans to, to either train or create a, a wider awareness of, for professionals? Hmm. It's one of the cases that's picked up on the, on the list of issues, um, so it's something we'll be seeking uh, um, input on. 
Um, but at this stage, oh, we, we wouldn't really be able to provide a response to you on that, but yeah. obviously if you go through the process, we should be able to provide you with some information on that. Right, I, I think, yeah, that'd be good. In terms of conformity, I think it would be probably a, a really good and useful piece of work. So thank you for that. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robbie. Can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please? Thanks. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, everyone, for um, the presentation this morning. I think it's, it's been really um, informative and has presented really clearly, so thanks for that. Um, the first point I'd like to raise, and Paul, I hope you will actually go into some detail, just given your kind of brief. Um, so one of the measures you've asked or one of the points that they've asked to you to explain what measures you've taken is i'm just going to read it here 24a to allocate sufficient resources for child care and family support to ensure that child care services are available to all those who need it regardless of parents employment status so can you tell me what um the north here what how you'll respond um what kind of progress that the Department of Education has taken in regards to the childcare strategy? We all know the importance of it, um, about how the lack of a childcare strategy and the kind of restraints to childcare at the minute, how it affects gender equality and um, also with um, educational and their achievement. Um, um, so can, can you just give me, explain to me how you're going to respond to that, how you've, how you've met that their kind of criteria? Yeah, well, certainly I can I can give you a bit of an indication. I, we haven't yet drafted our response to it, um, but uh, you're you're right. It is an area within my overall remit, and I think in in the next session, Tina Dempster is going to be involved to give you a wee bit more detail on where we currently are. But in a nutshell, um, the the work on the childcare strategy was paused for a year. Um, that was because. Um, I think it's eight different schemes had to be developed at pace and delivered to support the childcare sector. Um, over 30 million has gone out in the last year to the childcare sector and the amount of work that that has required in terms of developing the schemes, all the approvals, the governance arrangements, the delivery, the engagement with stakeholders. And every scheme wasn't just a repeat of the previous one. They all were subtly different based on ongoing engagement with the sector so that there was a sense of well, what does the sector need at this point in the pandemic? Now, that's not to make excuses because, to be honest, I don't think that is an excuse. That's an explanation as to why the half a dozen people that work on childcare have had to focus entirely on that for the last year. That said, there is absolutely a determination now to turn the attention back to the childcare sector. And I know the previous minister had indicated an intention to run a strategic insight lab as a sort of big evidence gathering exercise. That's still the intention. Tina will provide a wee bit more detail about that later this morning. Um, the new minister has recommitted to that. Um, that will be an opportunity for really all the people impacted, you know, parents, the, the providers, young people, children and young people themselves, we have to consult and involve them to give their views on exactly what do we want here? So what sort of strategy do we want? Now, a lot of work has been done, but it's, to be honest, getting a bit out of date. Like 2015 is sort of the basis on which we're still operating. So there's a, there's a job of work to be done this year on updating that, re-engaging, 
doing a bit of an exercise on well, what state is the sector in coming out of the pandemic? Because we know that it, it has been you know, impacted from our regular and ongoing engagement. You know, what's the issue of the demand? Has demand changed? Are there subtle differences in what parents want now based on perhaps changing working patterns, etc.? So short answer is there's a big job of work being planned for the next coming months to get us to a position where we can sit down and cost what would the different options look like like you could have a childcare strategy that um, has a huge number of elements right from the age of zero through to 12 13 14 year olds what would the sort of cost be of all those components what do we want to prioritize because of course there's been no budget yet allocated for this so there's an exercise being planned that's going to take us through all of that the committee of course will be involved in that um, and there will be opportunities for all those uh, interested to feed in their views with a view to really put a really put a momentum behind this um, and that that's the intention in terms of how we respond to this particular request, well, it's going to have to be there hasn't been a lot of progress as things stand. And that's that's the answer today. But of course, we will want to say what the plan is now to move things forward. And there are commitments. There's the commitment in the NDNA. Um, and on that basis, we will move forward on the expectation that that commitment also involves a commitment has an implicit implicit within it a commitment to fund it um, and therefore it is worth doing all this work because this is there's going to be a lot of work and if we did it all and then there wasn't an ability to fund it well that would be a bit of a waste but we have the commitment in the NDNA and on that basis um, we th we're, we're intending to proceed. Thanks for that Paul there's a lot of information in your answer there um, and I suppose really what I was getting the point I was trying to make there was the fact that we haven't met that criteria yet and although there is a lot of work to be done I'm glad that you're you're um, saying that and that you're, you know there is work to be done and it's ongoing and everyone seems willing to do it and we're all kind of in agreement over it um, but the fact is going back to the UNCRC we, we haven't met the criteria that they're asking for or made those measures you know so I suppose that's just a thing we can learn from is it for maybe the next six years that have a better answer for them um the other point i wanted to raise was there was another um criteria or point that they had raised and that was about progress on sexual and reproductive health education so again that brings in relationship and sexuality education and the fact that here in the north it's although the department will say it's mandatory um it can it can cherry pick certain parts of it um, so it certainly isn't standardized and to me that means it's not mandatory but if, if schools can um, choose what parts they want to teach and um, much of it is outdated as well so um, can you can you give me your um, opinion on that and like where do you lie with, with the UNCRC on, on um, relationship and sexuality education and do you see a need Again, are, are we meeting the criteria or where they want us to be? Um, what are your views on it? Um, again, Nicola, it's not an area that I have responsibility for, so I'm not able to give you that sort of level of detail. But 
um, it, it is one that's, that we will be uh, asking for a completed template on. So you will get um, the department's position and you will have an opportunity then to challenge or um, scrutinise if you feel that, uh, as you've just said, that um, the position isn't um, as, uh, I suppose, uh, transparent as you're saying the reality is on the ground. So like, it, it's worth saying that in a lot of these areas, um, maybe not so much this one, but where there's cross-departmental involvement, cross-executive involvement, there will it'll be a challenge to get an agreed narrative to send to the UK on some of these things. And I don't underestimate the difficulty that that will present. Um, it, and there will obviously be different perspectives and different political perspectives. And, um, we, and to some extent, the reason that we said to the UK, we need a bit more time and we might even need a bit more time than you have now given us reflects the, the sort of unique um, system that we have here and the unique approvals processes that will have to be gone through. So um, I suppose I would say just let's watch this space. You will have an opportunity to review all that information when it comes forward. But at some point, um, we'll need to agree on a form of words that can be submitted. And that might have to be a compromise. OK, well, um... Again, I suppose going from the offset reports from last week, from or maybe two weeks ago now, from England and Wales, and part of our correspondence this week was research from Girl Guiden um, about the numbers of like of sexual harassment within schools that young girls were facing in particular, and that includes in the north. You know, I think it's really important for us. And you mentioned other departments, and um, this also includes Department of Justice. Um, to be kind of coming from the same kind of angle with us here, that it is about protecting our children, young people, and educating them, boys and girls, um, especially around matters of consent. And as I've said before, like things have changed so dramatically from when we were young, and the um, the, the likes of online abuse and sexual abuse online as well, and it, it has changed so much. So I think it's something that we really need to be focusing on. Um, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate your answer there, anyway, Paul. And listen, um, I thought that was really informative um, discussion. So thanks very much for that, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. As Nicola says, thanks very much indeed for the update today. Uh, just briefly. The United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child recommended that the UK should enhance its efforts to reduce the effects of the social background or disabilities of children on their achievement in school and to guarantee the right of all children to a truly inclusive education in all jurisdictions. The concluding remarks of the UNCRC concluding observations of the fifth periodic report of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland I think that was 2016, Yeah, commented that Northern Ireland should abolish the practice of unregulated admissions tests to post-primary education, just, uh, just by way of update. Um, is that something that has been acted upon? Well, I, I think the uh, committee is aware of the answer to that in terms of where we currently stand, but it, it's int you, make, you make good point, Chair, that the, the, the concluding observations of 2016 also have to be commented on in this exercise. So um, 
where we where we have or have not acted upon them will become apparent in the response that's provided um, and again that will be an area for this department to largely as suppose lead on but you will have scrutiny of of what the response is in due course okay thank you and we look forward to continuing to engage with you on this important human rights framework for children in northern ireland thank you thank you very much Sorry, did I just get muted there accidentally? Apologies, Clark. Um, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarise any actions? Thanks. Um, I think that was really helpful in describing the process um, and also maybe managing expectations in respect of um, how this information is going to be collated and then presented and then reviewed um, you know, by different um at different levels of administration along the way. Um, the committee um, will want to write to say that um, it's in favour of a, a Northern Ireland specific report um, so that at least, you know, uh, stakeholders here can see the, the material all together. Um, and also there was a point that came over from several members, which was about um, that information being update, up to date and the, the perspective from on rights being up to date um, post protocol, post Brexit, post pandemic, um, the policy in the department, you know, that has been decided before those things happened um, needs need to be updated to reflect them and reflect their impact. Um, and there was a specific question then uh, to the witnesses about the previous recommendation in respect of, of transfer. So, Chair, I think you maybe answered your own question there um, on that. Um, but yeah, it would be interested to see what the response is to that going forward. Okay, thanks. Yeah, we've asked the, um, the department already um, after last week's meeting for uh, a summary of previous recommendations. Okay. Um, yeah, so specific issues on training and childcare strategy and RSE I'll reflect in the correspondence to the department. Okay, members wish to add any comments or actions to that or content to agree? Chair, the other thing is that on the um, post-Brexit and post-protocol um, matter of child rights, I know that the Human Rights Commission is doing some work on that at the moment, so it may be that some of our stakeholders in the rights sector would want to bring the committee specifically on those, um, and then you'll have the departmental perspective as well as the stakeholder perspective. Yeah. Members content to agree those actions? Agreed? Yes, Chair. Yes, okay. Thanks, thanks, members. Uh, we, due to clearing um, correspondence for our programme earlier, our last item then is agenda item seven, our briefing from the Department of Education on the budget and ten-year monitoring update to include specific reference to the child care strategy and common funding formula. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? referring members to a briefing paper from the department at page 178, further briefing papers from the Department of Education, which were tabled 
and a briefing note from the committee clerk in tabled items as well. Can I welcome Gary Fair, Director of Finance at the Department of Education, Philip Irwin, Director of Investment and Infrastructure at the Department of Education, Stephen Van Houten, Deputy Finance Director at the Department of Education, and Tina Dempster, Head of Child Care Strategy Team at the Department of Education. You're all very welcome to the Education Committee this morning. Can I advise you that the committee will allocate approximately 10 minutes to, for opening statements, followed by questions from members. Thank you. Okay. Are we connected okay? Yeah. Yes. We are, yes. Right, thank you very much for inviting us Thanks, along. Gary. Okay, um, so I'll, I'll kick off if that's okay, just to update you on the, the June monitoring position uh, on the back of the paper that we shared with you. So basically, I think from memory the last time I gave evidence to the committee was uh, following the Minister's final budget decisions, which uh, had sort of settled us uh, on the allocation of two, two, three, four, five point one million resource um and a resource over commitment of 81.2 million now the 2345.1 baseline position included 10 million for SEN, 30.6 million for school holiday hunger payments 0.5 million for eu matched funding and 44.4 million for covid 19 response measures and, and then on top of that was the the capital allocation the starting capital allocation of 147 million so the 81.2 million overcommitment, if you remember, included the 16.5 million confidence and supply money, which to date hasn't been baselined. We've had to bid for that over the last few years. 35 million to cover the 2019 and 2020 pay, Teachers Pay Award. 1.4 million Bright Start and 28.3 million COVID-19 funding. So we have actually, in terms of that overcommitment of 81.2 million, we have got all of those amounts now allocated to us in the subsequent period, except for the 16.5 million confidence and supply. So this left, at that stage, this left 149.93 million of unfunded general and NDNA pressures, as well as 29.1 million of unfunded COVID-19 pressures. There was then a May COVID exercise and all of the uh, the COVID pressures were reviewed at that time, as as you'll know from previous updates we've given the committee. We'll keep everything under the under review really uh, throughout the year. So we reviewed all of the COVID pressures and actually bid for, um, whilst the residual pressures were twenty nine million, we actually reviewed went round all policy colleagues and and any of the pressures that were being identified by other budget holders. And we increased what we bid for to 72.5 million resource. And there was also a capital bid of 19 million, uh, which was linked to COVID uh, additional laptops for teachers. So th those were submitted as part of that exercise. Um, and the outcome of that was that we secured 32.7 million resource and 19 million capital. So we got the full capital bid met. Now the balance, the 39.8 million balance of the 72.5 million COVID bids at that time uh, are still outstanding. Those largely relate to the situation later in the year, which is dependent upon whatever restrictions are going to be imposed later in the year. So it wasn't a bad outcome at all for us as a department. There was then the June monitoring exercise. 
again, all the pressures were reviewed, both our COVID and general and NDNI pressures. So the 149.93 general NDNI pressures became 178.9 million. Uh, and we also, uh, of, of course, are still short the 16.5 million, which we are hopeful we'll get at June monitoring. This included an additional 10.3 million pressures that, that weren't included in the original figure. The COVID pressure of the outstanding COVID pressure of 39.8 million was increased to 40.1 million following review. So we bid for 76.4 million at June monitoring. Uh, there's a, there was 11 million of the 178.9 that wasn't supported at this stage. 78.5 million was held for reassessment. That is lar that largely, in fact, it relates purely to the 42.0 million EA block grant pressure and the 36.4 million schools pressure. The reason that they need to be reassessed later in the year is we still haven't received the Education Authority's initial budget plan for this year. That's due with the department by the end of the month. So, you know, at this stage, it's it's not defined enough for us to justify bidding. So we need to be clear what the pressures actually are. But as always, we highlight uh, issues like this to the Department of Finance. So it's not a surprise further down the line if we do bid. And then the 36.4 million schools position. Again, we need to wait until later in the year to see what the impact of additional COVID money, for example, is and and how uh, schools spend pans out as the year as the year progresses. So it's, it's just too early in the day at this stage to review that. As you know, last year, all of the additional COVID money that we got had an overall very beneficial impact on schools expenditure in particular. Even though it was allocated for specific purposes, the combination of the additional money and school closures uh, you know, resulted in a much better position last year. But it kind of shields the underlying underfunding of, of schools and that's why we continue to highlight that and that that's simply that 36.4 million was included as an NDNA bid and then there was 13 million of that overall 178.9 pressure will be funded and has been funded internally from uh, money that the minister had held back for various reasons so in terms of June monitoring the the key resource bids are the 76.4 million and the 16.5 million confidence and supply money it is critical that we get the 16.5 million and we we have had a, we had a commitment at uh, budget stage that we would get that and then capital bids of 14 million for minor works and 4 million for ICT pressures and there was uh, some small reduced requirements 4.6 million so we don't know the outcome of June monitoring yet, but as as we've committed to doing in line with the, the requirements, we, we're just updating the committee on the position that we're in at the moment on what bids have been submitted. And I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks, thanks Gary. Um, obviously the outcome of the June monitoring process will be as important as the bids submitted for the June monitoring process. So hopefully yeah. we can engage with you after when when uh, assembly business permits. Um, can I bring in Pat Shane, MLA please, Deputy Chair. Thank you uh, and thanks. Uh, Folks, for that presentation, um, Guy, when do you expect to hear the outcome of June monitoring? Uh, well, we we don't know. I don't think we have an exact timeline. We're hoping very soon. 
obviously it's a matter that the executive has to consider. Um, and, and, and how confident are you that you're going to secure the bids that you've made? I mean, it would appear the minister has been uh, very supportive of education over the past year. Um, so are you, are you reasonably confident you're going to get what's asked for? Well, we know we have put forward, I mean, the, the 76 odd million that we have we have bid for, we're confident we can stand over those bids. Uh, it will depend, I suppose, on how much resources are available across the Northern Ireland block. So, you know, it's, uh, I would uh, I would have, I'd be confident that Department of Finance colleagues would be supportive of the total amount, but whether we get the total amount or not depends on what is available and what other pressures are faced across other departments, probably in particular health. Fair enough. And and just moving on to another subject in, in terms of the publication of the first start report and the emphasis that it placed on early years. Um, all the evidence tells us that there's a greater impact on resources that are directed at early years. Uh, but in our system, uh, it's weighted towards post-primary education. And I'm just wondering if the minister has indicated whether she will have a review of the common funding formula with with, uh, with a view to uh, rebalancing the budget going into schools and particularly uh, what's going into uh, early years. Has, has the minister given any indication in that regard? I think it's too early in the day yet for the minister. To, to be taking a decision on something like that is something we will we will certainly be engaging with her in due course on potential for taking the review forward again of the common funding scheme, but it's too early in the day yet really to expect the minister to have taken a view on that. Yeah, well, well in, in, in terms of your own view of it all, if, if there was to be a review of the common funding formula, what sort of timeline would we be talking about? First of all, to begin that and, and then to complete it. Well, there has been a lot of preliminary work done, as you'll have seen from the update paper that we provided. Uh, there was work done that was obviously stalled with the COVID pandemic onset. Um, but there was quite a considerable amount of work done uh, with in, in, involving engagement with various stakeholders. It wasn't a full public consultation. It hadn't got to that point. Everything was put on hold, obviously, uh, with the COVID pandemic. So we'd have to look at the timings again and exactly what approach would be taken and what other aspects might be looked at. So it'd be hard to gauge. Stephen, I don't know whether we can yeah. be more specific. Well, the, I, I suppose in, in terms of the time frame that uh, the common funding scheme sets out for consultation and where we are in this current uh, financial year, um, we've kind of missed the boat for undertaking a consultation in time for say the 1st of April, 2022. So really the, the earliest that we could actually implement um, any changes to the common funding scheme would be for the financial year from the 1st of April 2023. I think that the challenge from, from our experience of the work that has been done to date, uh, really uh, there is a fundamental requirement for additional resources going in to the ASB uh, to accommodate any potential changes to the scheme. That's always the challenge. And, as some, and obviously we do, as you know, continue to highlight the under-resourcing of the sector as a whole, but that that's a that is a tricky issue. But the, the timing as well, so really we're we're not it would not be before uh, probably April twenty twenty three that there would be an impact. 
Yeah, and I understand the issue around uh, the budgets and, and the fact there's been 250 million stripped out of the budget over the last number of years mm-hmm. obviously doesn't help. I suppose what I'm, what I'm looking for is a view from within the department in regard to the evidence that there's a greater impact from resources that are directed at early years than there is uh, at post-primary education. Yet uh, most of our resourcing is directed at post-primary. And do, do officials have a view uh, or do they accept the evidence that resourcing directed at early years has a greater impact? And if that is the case, if that is accepted, if the evidence is accepted, then we need to do something and we need to do it fairly urgently. I think the challenge is, I mean, obviously there, there's by, by no means not a focus on early years. I think the challenge as always is the limited resources that are allocated and uh, the men of the previous minister and the existing minister always has that challenge. You know, exactly how do you balance uh, allocations across various phases and sectors? Uh, it's uh, I, I think, I mean, I can't comment in detail. It's not my, my bailiwick, but I would say that there's no question about the benefits of early interventions. I think it's just when it comes to budgets, it's that challenge of balancing out across all of the needs of the sector. Yeah, and I mean, I did ask the previous minister about this issue and his response was that he wasn't prepared unless there was was extra funding made available. He wasn't prepared to take money from post-primary education and put it into early years. But if the evidence is telling us uh, what will be the most effective and efficient use of resources, um, surely it's an imperative that we rebalance the budget irrespective of what extra resources are coming in. Well, I think the problem is if you take away resources from post-primary, for example, as you refer to, you're, it, it, it would be essentially creating a problem there at school level. So it, it's it's not really an answer to take away from uh, an area which is already under pressure. I think the, the need there is for additional resources overall to address the underfunding of the sector. And until, until that's addressed, it's very difficult then. I, I mean, I can understand where the minister was coming from. In that respect, it's, it's just very challenging because if you, you, you essentially, if you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, it's, it's creating a problem elsewhere. It's not that it's not acknowledging the benefits of early interventions, it's just that lack of resources. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm not arguing for that, but if, we, if we're not getting extra resources, uh, if we're getting a, a, a better return or a greater return from our money, by putting it in early years, then surely there must be some incentive to do that. But I'll, I'll leave it at that for a minute. I just want to ask a quick question on 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 uh, on the capital side of things, and I'm wondering, Philip, maybe you can answer this about when there'd be another announcement on uh, new capital builds. 
Well, I think um, my early engagement with the, the minister, um, she is keen to, to look at, at that. And, you know, previously we had said that the, the, the aim would be to make another major works call before the end of this financial year. And I think that's the minister's, um, you know, that remains the minister's, the new minister's intention. So what are you talking about, the start of next year sometime? Yeah, before well before the end of March, that was that yeah. was basically yeah what was what was discussed. Okay, all right. Thanks for that. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Pat. Can I bring in Justin McNulty, MLA, please? Thanks, Chair. Thanks, folks. Thank you very much for your presentation today. Um, can we do a deep dive on saying we, you know it's a subject of this committee's um, focus? has been very much on special education needs. Can you give me the figures, what your understanding of the figures are, what the impact of the figures are, and what the, what the bid is, and what would the impact of that bid not be met? Here. Yeah. I can, if you give me a moment. Uh, you got a hand in there? I mean, the minute, I'll just run through. Uh, we'll look for the, the briefing that we have there, but uh, the minister, previous minister, as part of his budget decisions, allocated uh, 22 million for the implementation of the SEND framework at the start of the year. Now, the, the estimated amount required for that per annum is 30 million. So, 8 million has therefore been bid for at June monitoring to make up a shortfall in that respect. Um, the over the other sand pressures they have actually been re reviewed since the original budget decisions and the June monitoring position, and we bid for from memory. You're right, Stephen. We bid for forty odd million, 42, yeah. about forty two million, at June monitoring. So, uh, and that and that does reflect an increase in demand, right across the sector. Yeah, the residual pressure identified by EA has increased from 24 million to 40.6 million, which is 65% increase. Just, just explain that to me, please, guys. Yeah, well, sorry. I mean, in, um, primarily, it's about meeting increased demand uh, coming out of uh, COVID. Um, there's an expectation that there will be a rising number of children with SEND contributing to significant budget pressures for the EA. Um, and then SEND and the additional needs um, continue to be a significant element of the uh, EA's block grant accounting for, you know, almost half, and that continues to grow this year, and, 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 and it does, you know, COVID has been a contributing factor to that. Um, and then there's also, um, in, in with that uh, 42 million, uh, there's also the provision of transport uh, for SEND pupils, um, and, and, and transport costs, you know, continue to rise. Um, and, and, and just it is just a, a general overall demand uh, across the sector with, with increasing SEND numbers. Okay, so the SEND numbers have uh, escalated during the pandemic. They were rising anyway, but the, the pandemic has exacerbated the situation, you would say, massively? Well, it, it certainly hasn't helped, no. Okay, and how confident are you that those bids will be met? Again, we we have had success in the past in year when we're bidding for SEN because it is generally well supported, as you can understand. So, you know, we're hopeful, as the best okay. I can say. This just depends on what resources are available. Thank you. Can you give me detail on looked after children, please? Um, sorry, which figure are you referring to? Just in terms of value. We're 
I'm, I'm really concerned that throughout this pandemic, the number of looked after children has also uh, grown exponentially, which is hugely worrying for those children and for their families. Um, what are what are the demands, budget-wise, financially, in terms of how, how can, I give, can you give me the figures related to that? Well, there's there, there there was a bid put forward for uh, just over half a million uh, for to to um, you know that the EAs put in uh, for a team uh, to take forward uh, the look after sorry the children looked after policy um, and provision within the EA um, and then there was another figure of I think it was 1.2 million but I'd actually I'd probably need to get back to you with the detail of that if that's all right. Would you give me give me specific detail on that? Just I would be very. Uh... Concerned and curious about that issue. I think the half a million is, pri is primarily to, uh, to review uh, the effectiveness of the service at the moment. Okay. From what I gather, and that that was started last year, but the, there's additional resources required this year to that team primarily. Um, and so, so the figures you don't have the figures in terms of you that left that was there for saying you don't have the uplift figures for for looked after children. No, I don't think we have them handy here. No, we can get back to you with that. I'll be very interested to see those figures, yeah. um, folks, please. Thank you very much for your... Sorry, I was just going to say some of this detail will come through as part of the Education Authority's initial budget plan when we see it. That's why we've been, you know, we're not we're not able to be just too defined in some respects, because obviously the Education Authority has to work through the detail of how they will allocate their budget. Okay. We'll come back to you on that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank, thanks Justin. Just, Gary, just to supplement that that briefly. So, if I'm not wrong, the residual pressure identified on SEN by the EA has increased from 24.5 million to 40.6 million in respect of increased demand for 2021 funding of 30 million was estimated to be required annually to successfully implement the new SEND framework. Yeah. You received 22 million for that, leaving a shortfall of 8 million. And well, the measure has been yeah. submitted as a bid in this monitoring round, is that right? Yes, that's right. There was a certain, there was an amount, there, there were amounts allocated within the original budget. So that's what the 22 million was allocated out of originally. The minister, the then minister, decided to put that against the implementation of the sound framework. But that doesn't uh, although, the, pre the pressures identified by EA. No, that's what we're bidding for now. Yeah. Okay. And how concerned should we be that the EA has yet to provide its bids in relation to special educational needs to the department at this stage of the year? Well, in terms of the bids that were submitted at June monitoring, I mean, we we engaged closely with the Education Authority before those bids were submitted. So there's certain, you know, they have they have identified as clearly as they can at this stage what they believe that pressure to be. When I refer to their initial budget plan, that details exactly how they plan to spend against certain expenditure lines. We require that every year, obviously, because the department, the minister, has to approve that budget plan. So that's just part of the process, but. Yeah, we're 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 fairly confident. For we've had the assurances from the education authority. That's what they believe the pressure is, and we have supported that bit. Sorry, and can I just clarify um, to avoid confusion between the forty point six million pound send pressure versus the forty two million pound um, 
uh, block grant uh, uh, pressure that the EA has. The, the, the block grant uh, pressure, we're, we're waiting on the EA's um, initial budget plan for that, but the EA did provide us with a breakdown of that 40.6 million pound pressure, you know, to support that bid uh, for, the, for the send pressures. Okay. So what, what is the EA pressure on SAN? Well, the, the, the 40.6 consists of kind of an opening funding gap of seven and a half million. Um, 7.2 million of the pressure relates to a pressure against uh, special schools, against their budget. Um, 21.4 million is SEND support that the EA would be providing in mainstream schools. Um, 1.7 million for um, SEND pupils, uh, for pupil support. Um, and then 1.9 million for SEND transport. And then 1.3 million for temporary specialist uh, support. So there's, okay, so that's that's helpful detail on the on the the pressure of forty million pounds for EA and reach the send. Have, have you're seeking to access that forty million via June monitoring round? Then yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and what what's what's the implication of not receiving that forty million pound in full? Well, generally, where we where bid where we bid for resources, we bid for the most urgent things generally, or, and we highlight other pressures at June monitoring. If bids aren't met as early as this in the year, we would have to continue to bid for them later in the year. But obviously, it's better from a planning perspective, you know, where where we have priority bids like this that we get the money sooner rather than later. So uh, if we don't um, if we don't get part or all of that, then we'll continue to bid. It sounds like a significant amount of money, the amount of which you don't normally get allocated in full in a June monitoring round? Not always, just depends on what, what resources are available across the block. Kind of dependent on that and the priorities. Okay, is that the biggest individual pressure that the DA and the DA faces? It's probably the biggest in that well, chunk that we have applied for. the EA's block grant, yes. Yeah. Um, but it certainly it would be the highest priority. Yeah. So we're not really getting on top of SEM budgeting yet then? I'm just going to... Yeah. If, if you look at table four of the material that we shared with you, that sort of outlines, you can see that <clears throat> the SEM, the, the 40.6 and the F probably do, they are the biggest share of what we have bid for. Okay, I'm just, um, I think that's in our, uh, our normal yeah, number difference. Yeah, it's uh, table four is on page 188 of our pack. Um, yes, and so SEND funding for schools, 8 million, SEND 40 million, schools maintenance, 8 million, etc. Yep, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, can I bring in Robbie Butler, MLA, at this stage, please? Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, guys. Um, my first question is in relation to um, school accommodation, school maintenance, um, and issues with regard to either builds, uh, projects, and refurbishments. Um, and there's a, there's a growing and wider issue with regard to the price of building materials. Um, um, and, and resource, um, even uh, availability of uh, tradespeople to carry out the function. And I think, thinking in terms of, I think thinking, really good English lover, uh, uh, thinking about um, you know COVID and uh, in particular ventilation, therapeutic learning environments, and those those things that, that young people are entitled to in the school. So obviously there's there's the fiscal problem there, which the, the bid was not met. Therefore, an additional bid is going to be made, fourteen million pounds. That's one issue. So I'm, I'm 
So that's obviously an issue for the, the, the Minister for Finance in particular to try and find that money because there are uh, risks. But would the 14 million pounds be accurate insofar as I know from the fact that tradespeople and businesses are giving quotes uh, for work, which is no more than maybe two weeks. So they'll be given bids of this, the value of this project uh, is only valid for seven to, seven days to 14 days due to rising and escalating costs. Has that been factored in um, to the financial projections for uh, essential maintenance and builds? Um, I, I suppose, I mean, in, in, in terms of um, the, the, the bids that we have prepared here, they were prepared at a point in time and based on the needs as we saw them. I mean, you're absolutely right. There, there are a lot of um, pressures that are being um, flagged by the construction industry, both in terms of access to materials, cost of materials, cost of labour. And in fact, I think, as I understand it, there's a wider engagement between the construction industry and the Department of Finance, who would be on, on the, in, the, in the lead on this, in terms of potential contractual implications and so on. In terms of our bids, I suppose these have all been prepared on the basis of um, the, the standard costs we would have foreseen at a point in time when the when the bid was was prepared. Um, so there's nothing specific being factored in there around, you know, what what is happening on an individual contract or, um, you know, the the implications of what is happening in the market on potential delays to contracts and so on. Um, but that those um, those are real factors which do have a have the potential to um, impact um, immediately, but maybe more likely later in the year as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's actually a quite a significant risk now because it obviously it impacts on the, the ability for projects to to happen. And I'm thinking obviously there'd be a triage and a, and a, and a methodology for prioritising um, the, the projects and stuff. Um, but I mean, the price rises are significant. I mean, we're probably talking now in this last six months, price rises uh, in the region of 20, 30, and 40 percent for, for for many, many items. You know, and um, people are being priced out of buying houses. Never mind, uh, you know, extensions and stuff. And, and my real concern here is twofold. One is the safety element in and around COVID, particularly ventilation and heating when we move into winter, when we know that. Um, uh, that's an issue and obviously the health and safety legislation with regard to what children and teachers are and, and support staff are, are entitled to um, will, can and will be impacted um the, the other it's also the same point so and also the therapeutic environments in school estate particularly in special schools so that that you know, so the safety piece, and then there's the, the special schools piece with regard to that, that more modern therapeutic environment. Um, so I, what I would hate to see is that the delay, first of all, the finance minister has to, to show up to this, and secondly, that we project these accurately so that we're not undervaluing the project, and then we don't follow it through because we can't afford it. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 bizarrely, the, the potential risk is not so much against uh, uh, overspend, it, it's there there is also an element of this that that creates an underspend in that a lot of the larger contracts that um we have budgeted for contracts being signed in year uh, and, and and getting away and spending later in the year um where bidders are unable to stand over their price or where the prices do come in that are above what we had had approved in the business case some time ago 
actually the impact of that is potentially to delay the project because we have to get new approvals for the, the new pricing and that results in an underspend in year rather than projects where where maybe we minor works for example where um we're we're we're, we're undertaking the work and it comes in at a higher value will we'll create a, an overspend so it becomes we have to look at both sides of the of the balance if you like uh, at the impact it just makes it more difficult to land the budget at the end of the year but I, I suppose I, I would say it's not all it's not all pressures in year that 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 call, create overspend there, there actually are elements of this that'll delay spend and, and yeah. potentially create an underspend yeah okay I, I, I get that it's, it's, a, it's a it's a hard one um so then uh, yes you, you mentioned underspends there are, are there any significant underspends in here across the uh, well, uh, as we stand at the moment it, 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 the pressure is much the the other way um i think as i said the last time i was up we have potentially significant increases in demand on the ICT side and on transport side than from previous years. Um, and our, our way of managing this is usually to, to use the, the kind of minor works budget as a, as a balancing pot. As we stand at the moment, you know, we have significant bids in, in June monitoring uh, for capital for minor works of 14 million plus additional 4 million for ICT. Um, if we didn't get the, the minor works bid met in particular, there would definitely be, um, you know, we'd have to get into some sort of significant reprioritization issue to look at what we can do in year and what we can't. But we're, we're hopeful that, that those bids will be, will be met. And obviously it'll be a few weeks yet before we find out. But, um, you know, the, the, you know if, if those bids are met in full, um, we, you know, we shouldn't have an issue in terms of, of funding. Okay, and final question then, um, and that's kind of ties into the mention of ICT and stuff. So obviously there's the, the confidence and supply monies, which has partially been drawn down, and there are a number of projects which aren't, which are kind of linked, because if you think of ICT and the provision of broadband, and, and so it's not just um, determined to the Department of Education. Are there any, um, are there, have the full allocations been drawn down with regard to confidence and supply monies? And if not, are there any pressures to availing and accessing that money? Um, is it time bound and will it run out? Uh, basically, the, well, we, uh, the previous minister planned uh, his budget this year on the, the basis, the assumption that he would get the 16.5 million. We haven't got that yet. We've bid for it again at June monitoring. And it's critical that we get it. Um, yeah. it. It is linked, obviously, to areas of deprivation, but it will, it, it will just have a detrimental impact on the overall budget if we don't get it. So we're continuing to press for that. Yeah, no, that would be a good one because obviously the detrimental impact of the budget, obviously, it, the importance of that is the detrimental, as you said at the start, the detrimental impact to the pupils in those areas of social deprivation. Yes. Where it's yes. intended to be. So I think that is definitely a priority. And thank you very much for that, you, Chair. Yeah. Thanks, Robbie. Can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please? Thanks, Chair, and thanks everyone for attending here this afternoon. Um, my question, I think, is for Tina. I think you'll be able to answer me, Tina. Um, it's about childcare finance and early years. Um, so I know that the department and the minister has extended the um, support funds for the childcare sector, um, the two funds, so for the COVID sustainability fund and the temporary closure fund, which is obviously great and welcome. But um, in regards to the um, this monitoring round, 
um, pressures in relation to the childcare strategy and early years development or the workforce development have been reassessed and reduced to nil, it seems. So um, obviously both these areas are um, of development are really important um, for a number of different reasons. But can you explain to me why um, or what financial pressures had been identified previously and why these pressures seem to have disappeared or has it just kind of fallen off a list of priorities? No, no, it hasn't fallen off the list of priorities at all. Um, for this year, we have secured um, funding to run the Strategic Insight Programme um, that the previous minister had committed to. Um, so it will hopefully, we've already engaged with our colleagues in DOF innovation team to look at these dates between October, sort of December time. We've also secured some money to commission what we need, I think is vital, is an up-to-date um, state of the sector report. Um, so we have the funding secured for that in this financial year. The work then that will follow and will come out of those two very vital pieces of work will direct the priorities and the actions and what needs to be taken forward. Now, there may be additional staffing resources required, internal staffing resources required within DE. We're currently scoping those out um, and obviously subject to the minister's views. Then there may be a further additional bid made this year for an October monitoring for some internal resource. But the future years will obviously be very much directed and depending on what the priorities and the actions and what the strategy will produce. So for this year, we have secured what we feel we need to take forward the development work. Um, and if there, there may be an additional internal resource, and we're currently scoping that out, which may form a bid on October monitoring. Okay, thanks, Latina. Um, can you tell me what the delay was actually in, in setting up that strategic insight lab? Because it was, I think, due to begin in June of this year, and now you're saying it could be October to December? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, and I think my um, director previously in the previous session had highlighted the significant work that was needed and taken forward in producing eight funding schemes and, you know, nearly 30.5 million paid out to the sector um, up to March. And then the development of these two further schemes, one which will run to the end of June and one to the end of September. There's significant work required in that. Um, and you know the resources had been totally focused on getting that much needed support, which the sector had, had been calling for and, and I understand greatly received. Um, uh, well, listen, I'm, I'm not um, arguing against that there. As, as, as soon as our, the first thing I said here was welcoming the fact that there has been help to the sector um, um, addressing like issues with COVID. But I'm just wondering what the delay was to the Strategic Insight Lab for a specific childcare strategy. Or was it the fact? There is significant work in preparing for an Insight Lab. Um, if you want to get the best out of an Insight Lab, then you know you need to put the work in in advance. The Insight Lab itself, um, it, it is a process which will take about three months to complete. It will have different engagement sessions with MLAs, with providers, with parents, with children and young people. So we have to prepare for all of those sessions. We then have a, a Challenge Lab event with taking on board that information, which will formulate the actual two-day event in itself. So there is significant preparatory work. We also needed the funding secured this year to run that event. Um, and as alongside that, again, the funding to run the State of the Sector report, which we hope to progress as well um, coming into the autumn. 
So, you know, it, it's not just a matter of here's a two day event. There is significant work in preparing and we have been working over this last few months with our colleagues in DOF innovation team who will run this with us and, and for us and produce a report at the end of it. I understand that Tina of course there's a lot of work involved in setting that up and to be honest I think it sounds great I think it's just going to be um, a real proactive way of addressing the issues around um, a strategy and finding, finding the solutions for it and um, okay, the, the main points that need to be incorporated in it um, so I do appreciate that and as last kind of all I want to ask you about was about um, the child care finance um, so thank you for that thank you chair Thanks, Nicola. Uh, Tina, obviously the proposal of the Strategic Insight Lab came out of engagement with the all-party group on early education and childcare, of which Nicola and I are members. And Nicola is right to refer to some frustration with regards to the timescales and delivery of the Strategic Insight Lab. But I think if we could say it's happening in October, that that would be uh, a significant step forward. So are we saying it's happening in October or are we saying it's happening in October like we said it was happening in June? Well, um, what I would say is that I know the new minister is very committed to taking forward this trial care strategy as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, there is an oral question next week which the minister will set out her views on the way forward. But what I would say is, yes, there has been initial discussions with the minister and a commitment that this Insight Lab should progress in the autumn this year. Okay, because I mean that, I mean, with a childcare strategy has been programmed in the programme for government since 2010 and before. So it's not like October is some sort of uh, decisive um, date here, you know, we, we are, are, are some sort of advanced work program step forward on this we've been waiting for quite some time so that would be a real encouragement if that if that did initiate in october and the state of the child care sector report is obviously something to build on as well i presume there is no budget allocated for implementation of the child care strategy at this stage no there's not and i think um what we want to do is following the state of the sector and the strategic insight program is then start to develop the the options and a delivery, um, a costed delivery plan and the priorities taking on board that feedback and the state of the sector and the changing landscape for childcare following the pandemic. So I think only when all of those issues, um, you know, can be fully costed and a proper delivery plan, you know, can ministers make decisions on the future budget and the, the need for what budget for childcare. I think if anybody doubts the importance of having devolved executive ministers in place and childcare is your answer that you can give them, we need we need them there to deliver on this really important issue for local people. Th thanks, Tina. Um, I, I'll, I'll try and rattle through a few questions here, but I've, I've got a few, um, so I'll try and be quick. Obviously, Gary, the Institute for Fiscal Studies 2020 Annual Report in Education Spending found that real-term cuts in school spending per pupil since 2010 have been largest in Northern Ireland, approximately 10%, and in Northern Ireland, the total budget fell in real terms by 5%, meaning that pupil population growth of 6% led to even larger cuts in spending per pupil. Are we anywhere close to addressing that um, unfavourable position in relation to 
the worst cuts experience in these regions? Uh, well, the, the first caveat I would make is that it can be challenging enough making comparisons between UK countries. But leaving that aside, uh, we, we are fully acknowledging that there are still underlying concerns around the funding of the sector generally and schools and specifically. Uh, last year shielded the position in many ways because there was so much additional money uh, pumped into the system for specifically COVID related issues, plus schools were closed for long periods. So I, I suppose the point I made when I was in front of the committee before, I would just keep emphasising we need to be cautious at the moment whilst uh, the position for last year ended up landed quite well. Uh, I think it is still shielding the reality that the sector as a whole is continuing to be underfunded. Now, obviously, the previous minister, when he was making his budget decisions, he was trying to get as much as he could afford out to schools directly through the ASB. But it's it's not easy because it's you know it's, in the Gary in the in the absence of additional COVID funds, does mm -hmm. education remain in financial crisis in Northern Ireland? Yes, uh, as I said at the start when I was giving a summary, you know, there's a, there's a 36.4 million that we have identified as potential schools pressure. The challenge this year is because we've, we're continuing to get additional COVID money, that's invariably has a positive impact and it's hard to, until that works through the system, it's hard to see where that lands. But the point that I will continue to make is that there still exists pressure across the sector. It's being shielded to some extent by the COVID money. And will is fundamental reform needed to address that financial crisis, or is someone going to meet all those pressures in full? Well, I suppose we will be looking for the the findings of the independent review and seeing how you know what comes out of that. That will hopefully uh, bring some focus to all of this. Again, in the meantime, we continue to stress what we believe the pressures are, and we can continue to bid for those pressures. Okay, I'm keen to touch briefly on capital and accommodation and, and maintenance. I visited a school recently whose canteen had collapsed, just fairly collapsed. Um, and it's my understanding, I think I raised this with you previously, in terms of the, the minor school works budget, um, you've uh, £27 million gap between the initial budget of this year and the final budget of last year. Has that gap closed? Well, that, that the bid uh, that we've put in June monitoring, obviously it was £18 million, would make a, a big uh, difference there. Um, and the, the normal process, as you, as you said, you're comparing an end of year there versus an initial allocation. The, the the end of year or as you go through the year it is typical that some of the other major projects whether it be on ICT or construction are inclined to slip a bit and when that money when the budget reduces it's the minor works budget that we would normally apply that to so if we if we are able to to secure the 18 million that we bid for I would be reasonably confident that we're in a, in a similar position to, to where we were last year uh, if we don't get that money, as I've said, then we definitely do have an issue, and we will have to look at a, at a uh, you know, a, a reprioritisation of of where the funding that we do have is being applied. 
Okay, because even that would leave a, a nine million pound gap from the uh, the final budget last year and this year's budget. It, it would, but as I say, you know the 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 a lot of the other larger projects, as and when they, they slip the the uh, you know if if there is a slippage and you know Robbie Butler had referred to some of the things that are going on in the market that have the potential to to make that happen, it's usually to the minor works budget that we would apply any any. Uh, release of, of of budget so um I, I wouldn't be if if our bid is met in full i wouldn't be overly concerned let's put it that way that we're in a much different position from where we were previously and what is the general state of repair of school accommodation in which our children and young people are being educated in northern ireland well i think it's fair to say you know the the demand for minor works is um well, I was going to say insatiable, but uh, you know there is a huge demand for minor works. There, there's no doubt we we have a, a, a significant issue in terms of being able to bring a lot of the existing accommodation uh, up to to you know to standard. Are are any of our buildings uh, danger? No, we are. We mean we're prioritising the minor works, and the, and the, they are prioritised on the basis of of safety and uh, you know health and safety issues associated with uh, the buildings, but generally or um, issues associated with statutory requirements associated with individual pupils and so on. And we're able to meet all of those requirements as we stand at the moment. Um, the 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 bigger issue is there's there's an, an underlying. Um, you know, deficit, if you like, in the work that needs to be done in buildings generally to to get to to a, 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 a improved standard, and we don't have the money to to get beyond doing the the urgent and required statutory works uh, to the what what might be deemed nice nice nicer to have works, but we, we you know there is definitely a gap there. Okay, and Phil, do you think on balance that there is greater need? for upgrades in our non-selective post-primary schools compared to our selective post-primary schools? Um, there shouldn't be. I mean, certainly as far as capital works are concerned, all schools are, are, are assessed on the basis of need, not on the basis of their sector. Uh, and decisions in terms of where the investment goes, uh, it, you know, is based on, on that need. Uh, so. You know the the process certainly should, would imply that all schools are treated the same and should should end up in the in the same position. Um, there is a difference between the maintenance spend in that uh, voluntary grammars are allocated their maintenance money and it's their responsibility to to apply that to, to in whatever way they they feel, but that they have a budget and and make the the maintenance decisions in a way that for other sectors the maintenance budget is held centrally. And applied across the estate, that depending on, on how individual schools decide to apply or not apply that budget, can okay. potentially have, have issues. But generally, okay. as a state, okay. you said, you said, yeah, you used the word should in, in your last question there. And, and, and I presume you you see a lot of schools in Northern Ireland in your, in your role and on balance in your assessment are selective post primary schools in a better state of repair and more fit for purpose in terms of accommodation than non-selective post-primary schools? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, let's put it this way. When we do the assessment for the capital works, 
it's based on a scored protocol and we don't see um, any individual sector getting more or getting less than than the you know when you when you average it out over a number of years and in, in any individual year you can see certain um you know uh, just the way the the the, the dice falls, if you like, that uh, certain sectors maybe get some more schools, but if you, some more investment. But if you average it out over a number of years, there there wouldn't appear to be uh, a significant difference uh, across the different sectors. Is there any differentiation in terms of uh, deprivation uh, indicators in terms of target investment, capital investment? Well, in terms of the those scoring protocols for the school enhancement program or the major works, there are specific scores that are applied um, for uh, you know the percentage of free school meals pupils that attend the school, for the percentage of SEN uh, registered pupils at the school, which will give those schools a, a, a slightly higher score. Uh, the factors that are applied there are relatively small numbers in terms of the overall score. The the main focus of the score is based on the quality and the um, the the, the uh, you know the, the accommodation that's available, the suitability of the accommodation. But in terms of, uh, I suppose, at the margins, the the schools that have uh, the higher levels of deprivation and the higher levels of of sand pupils will get a little bit of a bump up in their score that potentially gets them over the line compared to, to other schools with a similar accommodation score that don't have those those social factors uh, bringing them up. Okay, I've got something to look at further. And, and this is my final uh, section of questions. I'll try and rattle through them quickly, Philip. Um, the Fresh Start Capital funding was agreed in March 2016. Uh, and two projects have been completed in five years, and another three are scheduled by 2022. I'll have been six years in total, possibly five projects. Why so slow? Well, first of all, those are all major projects. So, um, you know, we would typically look at from announcement to completion of a, a, a major work like that five to seven years being the, the, the norm, if you like. Um, in terms of the, uh, the actual budget over the period, we still have profiled that we will spend all of the money that's available. In fact, it's over-profiled as we stand at the moment uh, within the 10-year window that that money was, was made available for. Um, so while we would always like to be able to complete projects more quickly than we do, and we're continually working to try and look at processes to improve the speed. Um, you know, the key issue there is that we we are able to invest the money that's been made available within the window that it's been available in. And we're certainly still on track to be able to do that within the, the 10 years from the initial announcement. Okay. Five integrated colleges on the list that you provided, Slamish, Hazelwood, Drumra, Dungannon, Park Hall. Um, Project, don't have projected spend or anticipated dates for completion. Can you provide those? Well, the reason for that is those were uh, more more recently announced. I can't remember what year, but you know those were the the last tranche of schools that were announced. So the reason that the program's not set and the budget's not set is we we have the design teams procured there. They are out doing the technical feasibility work at the moment for the business case, 
at the point where the business case selects a preferred option for each of those schools, then we would be in a position to say, this is the, 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 the actual scope of the project, the cost of the project and the time scale for the project. I mean, I can give you an update on where we are in terms of uh, at the point at which we expect those business cases to be approved. But I suppose anything in terms of cost and time scale and so on before the business case is approved is, is sort of speculation. Will they be completed on time? Yes, well, we're, well, as I say, the, 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 we're over profiled in terms of the, the funding that is, we have more projects than we have funding at the moment. And we, we, you know, we will invest the full amount in the 10 years as per the program that's there at the moment. Some of those projects, particularly, I mean, if you take some of them, Park Hall's a relatively small one. It's a, it's a sixth form center effectively um, and, and should be done fairly quickly and, and within the time frame. Some of the other ones which end up being a new build on a, on a greenfield site, uh, it might be they're on site and spending, but they fall off the end of the 10 years. But we still expect that the full amount of money in the 10 year will, will be spent in the 10 years, the full extent of the fresh start money. We would then need to find executive capital to finish some of those projects potentially. Okay, that, was, that was my next question. All fresh start uh, agreement projects are due to be completed within 10 years after the announcement. So is that March 2027 for them and will they? Yeah, well, as I say, some of those later ones that that uh, may be tight, and until we see the actual program and the option that's selected in the business case that's approved, I couldn't say definitively. But uh, they certainly, you know, all things being equal, they certainly should be on site and well through their construction if they're not completed by by March twenty seven. Okay, and the projects that are the responsibility of the education authority seem to be moving very slowly. Prairie, Fort Hill, Bangor, very slow progress. They're due by 2026. Why so long? Well, there's no doubt there has been, a, 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 I suppose, a, a, a lag in some of the, the Education Authority projects, I think, was driven potentially by the, the process that uh, was used initially in undertaking the business case where uh, it was slightly different from the non-controlled schools in that the, the business case work typically was, was completed in-house by the Education Authority. Uh, an external ICT team was brought in to, to undertake the design work as a, after the business case had been approved. And in many of those cases, when the, the, the third party, if you like, the external uh, consultant team looked at it, they were coming up with slightly different proposals from the initial ones that had been undertaken by the EA, and that in, involved a, a, a kind of a relook at the project. And in many of those cases, that uh, that was part of the the, the, the issue uh, as to why the, the time scale extended. Okay, is that an approach? Is that an approach that isn't going to be used again then? It's already been confirmed that any of the non. Uh, fresh start ones, the, the executive funded ones that the, the EA are undertaking, they're now using the same approaches we used for the non-controlled schools where they're bringing in the ICT from day one. Uh, so that yeah. the, the, the approach is standardized across the program. Seems a shame that that time is lost. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think you've alluded to this earlier, Phil, but if there are delays on the projects and they run past 2027, does the Department of Education pick up any extra capital costs? 
Well, that would obviously be a decision for the minister uh, at at the time. Um, but it's like any of these things, you know. We we if if you're contractually committed, you know, we the the NICS generally, if you're contractually committed, you you'll have to finish the project. Uh, then it's a case of where do we find the funding and and uh, uh, where do we bid for it or how how do we manage that? But uh, you know, our focus is on trying to get as much or all of this completed by March 27 as is, is possible. Okay, uh, and what sort of support is given to schools where there's a new build to be completed on an existing site? Um, that's all part of the programme, uh, and the schools are obviously an integral part of the, um, of the process. But, you know, and, and we acknowledge this when the business case is being prepared, we look at, at you know you look at the costs, but you also look at the non-monetary benefits and disbenefits. If a school is having to operate from the same site that the construction work's taking place, that's obviously a, a less desirable place to be than in a, a building on a greenfield site. But in many cases, schools want to stay where, where they are. So it's a process that the school are a part of, and it's, it just has to be managed as best it can during that construction period where the schools continue to operate from what is effectively a, a construction site alongside it. Okay, final question from me. Does the funding fully cover all costs, including nursery units? And um, like George Integrated Primary School, for example? Uh, well, if there's a, a depends on, I think at the point in time where the funding was approved. So in some cases, if there's a statutory nursery unit there, uh, and I, I can't remember from Ford's point of view, I think it was a DP maybe in, that took place after the event. So the funding was approved on one basis and maybe the DP changed that. So I'd have to come back to you on the exact position of Ford's. But the general principle is if there's an approved statutory nursery, it would normally be part of, of a major project on the site. If, however, and I can think of some of the other projects there where there's a, a, a non-controlled nursery school, if you like, on the site, then it would not be part of the project. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Phil, and thanks to everybody for uh, your time today and your answers. Um, it feels like we've still got a lot of work to do and a long time to go before we're not talking about crises in relation to financing our, our education system. Um, so I appreciate the work um, and the hard work that that you guys face in that context. So thank you for all that you're doing and. Um, Wish you well with the June monitoring round and look forward to receiving an update about that in due course. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarise any actions from that briefing before we close our meeting today? Um, so, Chair, as we only have quorum um, for briefing is not decision making. I'll just make it quick. Um, essentially, we would like a, a routine briefing again after the summer on how June monitoring went and the committee can then you know, interrogate the updated position. Um, um, but as, as usual, we'll thank the officials for their attendance and their hard work. Okay, thanks, uh, Clark. Uh, any other business members? Sure, could I come in? Uh, yeah. We can't make a decision on this, but I'm sure, like myself and all the rest of us on the committee, our inboxes are full of concerns being voiced by parents about changes to courses and exams next year. 
And I'm wondering, uh, should we invite Sia back in again to discuss these issues? It's my understanding, Pat, that Sia are scheduled to be one of our earliest briefings in September. If you're content with that date, it's the four-work program has proven challenging to manage. But Clark, am I right in saying it's a, an early session in September? Yeah, it is, sure. Is that oh, all right? Oh. Yes, yeah, that's, that's fine. Thanks. Thanks for that, Pat. Any other business members? No. Okay. Can I, folks, can I say a sincere thank you for you um, being here through, through the course of uh, a series of really important briefings there this morning? I know there were, uh, there was at least one extremely exceptional uh, circumstance for a number of our members today, but um, I hadn't received that advance notice from all members that there was going to be uh, apologies today. So for those of us who stayed the course, um, as as was understood we would be doing, I really appreciate that and thank you for the, the question and the work that's been put in today. The date and time of next formal meeting then is next Wednesday, the 30th of June at 9.30. Clark, can I check there's no informal meeting next Tuesday? There is an informal meeting with the Bill Office on legislative procedures. Okay, um, no problem. Uh, and that's at 9 o'clock or 9.15? 9.15? We can make it 9.15 if you prefer. Um, if we can make it 9.15, that might aid a few members. Okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, committee meeting does not adjourn, members. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks.